Hello and welcome to Chats, the television podcast, season 14, The Chatsovers. On this season of Chats, we're covering the HBO drama, The Leftovers. My name is Alan, and I'm joined as always by the scientist who worked countless hours to perfect the biometric penis scanner. It's Magellan. (laughs) I was so ready to start humming The Scientist by Coldplay, and then you threw me off with that one. I think that's what it's about, though, right? Set that's what the down your about. penis. We <laughs> have to scan it. <laughs> so we can know how girthy you are. Oh right? God. Yeah, right. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, I am so excited to talk about the thud noise in that scene. <laughs> oh, my God. The sound engineers were having a field day with that one. Yeah. I might need to end up dropping that in when we get to it. But first... Hi, Magellan. How are you? I'm doing absolutely terrific. How are you? That's so good. My God, I love how my friends are doing well. I'm doing well because even though I've been bored and waiting to move and travel and all that stuff, I'm kind of in limbo right now. I -hmm. started TNG season three yesterday and and made a bunch of progress on it today for our upcoming episode of Trek Chats. And I love Star Trek. I really love it. It makes me happy. That's great. So, yeah. That Data's my friend. He's real and he's my friend. Dita. How are you, Dita? Dita. Dita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) People should just watch every TikTok that hits their For You page, and then you'll get all of our jokes. We're no longer constantly referencing Vines like we did in 2016. To the point mm-hmm. where we annoyed our listeners. Now we're going to annoy our listeners by referencing TikToks. We're, TikToks, we're doing TikToks, it. TikToks, 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 TikToks. Uh, today on the chat sofas, we're talking about the final two episodes of the cult classic television show. Is it cult classic? We'll have to discuss that. Um, one hmm. of my favorite television shows, for firmly now that I finished it, The Leftovers. Specifically, we're talking about season three, episode seven, the most powerful man in the world and his identical twin brother. In the series mm-hmm. finale, episode eight, The Book of Nora. The most powerful man in the world and his identical twin brother was written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse. It was directed by Craig Zobel and it aired May 28th, 2017. Magellan, can you attempt to tell me what happened <laughs> in this episode, please? <laughs> Do your best. In this episode of The Leftovers, on a mission of mercy, Kevin comes from Mitch and Murray. That's from um, that thing. <sighs> Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> I'm here from Mit- Mitch and Murray, and I'm on a mission of mercy. Oh, I haven't seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but I believe it's you. from the part that it's the Alec Baldwin ABC. monologue that was written for the movie and isn't in the stage play. Is the AB- is you referring to the ABC part? Mm-hmm. It's not in the oh. stage play of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It was written for the movie. No kidding. You learn something every day. Yeah, it's the best part. So I'm glad they did it. Good job. Yeah. Uh, Mamet, who's a conservative guy. Anyway. Oops, oops. On a mission of mercy, Kevin assumes an alternate identity. In this new universe, he is the president of the United States, but he is also an international assassin hired to assassinate his twin brother. Uh, Can I tell you something funny about the word but? Yeah, of course. During lunch today, a student wrote on the whiteboard, uh, just as an example, Alan eats butt. But they wrote Alan eats comma B U T exclamation point. So Alan really, eats, however, it was Alan eats, but but. Uh, so that thought that was funny. The power anyway. of a comma can really change everything. The most powerful yeah. comma man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
but here we are talking about the second to last, this penultimate pen. episode. But did it have the ultimate pen? Peen. They had 15 of them, in fact. 15? <laughs> pen 15. <laughs> okay. I'm a child. Oh, I think I need a mission of mercy over here. You do. Uh, yeah, this is the penultimate episode of The Leftovers. What'd you what think? Did you th- Oh, you you beat me to it. You beat me to it. I'm your assassin. Pow. Ow. I'm your assassin. Pa-pow. Oh, we're both sad now. I miss my girlfriend. We really fucked up this whole podcast thing. (laughs) Uh, We really goofed this one, eh, Jeff? Damn. Damn. Uh, Did did you like it? Yeah, I did. I'm really glad that we watched both of these back to back for a couple reasons. Number one being I needed the levity before the second one. Um, And... This actually provided some pretty clever closure to a lot of the side characters of the series and the main like present day plot questions that I was concerned about. Uh, and then also reframed the real momentum of the series as what the creators wanted it to be about, which was Nora and Kevin's relationship to Nora. Um, so we kind of got there right at the very tail end and right at the top, actually, if you think about it, because so many episodes of the show are cyclical. Uh, that I came around like, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot. I laughed a lot. Uh, it was thought provoking. It's kind of a greatest hits episode. Here's all the themes and weird things you like. Um, so I, yeah, I had a really good time. What about you? Yeah, it's, it's funny that you, um, delineate it in that way, because I think the creators are trying to make a really clear statement with the choice of opening theme music for both this and the last episode, because- The credit song in this one is the Leftovers theme from season one. And the credit song in the next episode is the song that they used in season two. Uh, And it feels like these episodes are tying up themes and ideas from those respective seasons. Obviously, the International Assassin stuff is from season two. I don't mean to say that that most powerful man in the world does nothing to respond to season two. But like you said, um, it's in a way, the last episode of The Leftovers. And in a way, it's the last episode of The Leftovers. And then the next episode is like a short film inspired by The Leftovers or something. It's like the saddest OVA I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but this one is like, yeah, let's let's tie a bow on, you know, we'll bring Patty back, Meg's back, just because... Uh, let's figure out all this stuff with like Kevin's dad and John. The sweatpants and from the first scene in the pilot are back. When were the sweatpants there? Who's wearing the sweatpants? Okay, so there's Is that what he wears in, when he gets dunked, or no, no. In uh, I'm not sure where he when he wears them. No, so in the pilot he wears them when he goes running, and everyone like on the news was like, "Oh my god, Justin yeah. Thru has a huge dongus." Yeah. Uh, when he is introduced that like in the assassin world by the by Dean, he's like, "Oh, you're an assassin." He puts the sweatpants on again, and it was like, uh, "Wow, it really all comes full circle." This episode is explicitly about Justin Thru's dick. Wow, 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 wow! <laughs> Incredible stuff. Yeah, um, but you know, I kind of felt at times in this one like the the world the dream world stuff has overstayed its welcome a little bit in yeah. in my opinion or i like was just less interested in it cuz the first time we did it with uh the patty stuff it was like new unusual deeply richly thematic the second time they kind of dipped in and came right back out with the homeward bound song and then this one it 
felt almost a little bit farcical. Uh, yeah. The yeah. kind of like dream logic uh, jokes of God that were happening to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it wasn't my favorite episode, but I think like you were saying, it, it very deftly addresses a lot of stuff, answers a lot of questions, closes a lot of holes or leaves them intentionally open so that the final episode can be almost entirely this like two-hander character study of Nora and Kevin that does doesn't have anything else to to answer for really. Yeah, this episode does a ton of heavy lifting uh and I give it a lot of credit for that cuz it's tough, you know, especially like at this point in the season you're like okay, we have so much that we need to cash in. Mm-hmm. How do we do that in a plot that feels coherent? And I think if you did that in the present day, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. So at the very least the you know, assassin and the br- reflective services bouncing him back and forth uh, allows the show and allows Kevin to tackle so many different things in a really like fast pace. Um, but I agree to your point though, that like I definitely came out enjoying international assassin as an episode more. Um, I think that's more rewatchable. It's more singular. Um, and the leftovers is at its best when it's singular and not trying for too many things like it did in season one. Um, so I still think I prefer that one, but I like, had a good time watching this, even if there were times when I was like, this might have affected me more emotionally if maybe I hadn't recently watched International Assassin. Because uh, yeah. it kind of felt like they were doing, like I said, a greatest hits or just like you said, almost farcically just retreading things that they've exactly done before. I, I um, have a question for you before we get into the actual plot of this episode. Sure. Um, just as someone who... As you said, as you've been saying, you watched the first two seasons of The Leftovers when it aired. Yep. This was your first experience watching season three. Um, what was that like for you? Like, did you feel, I guess even in this episode specifically, did you feel like it was giving you things that you were missing at the end of season two? Or like, does someone need to watch this far to get the value of the show i think maybe the answer is different when we talk about the finale yeah um but how did you feel coming out of of, of this one i guess in that respect i think this show has successfully transformed its identity between seasons really well and by that i mean like season one is this like very grim oftentimes borderline cynical sad story about a bunch of broken people you know, I think back to Two Boats on a Helicopter and I go, wow, season one of Leftovers is like about people suffering and we find comfort in that because we also suffer sometimes. And it ends like every season ends and like Parada's book supposedly ends from what I've read, uh, suggesting, hey, things are going to be okay. We find community even after disaster, which is like what The Leftovers ends up being about, right? We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, and so I think though, like as television, Season three is like everything I actually wanted out of the leftovers. It's everything I like, like desperately felt it was missing. It filled in all of those blanks of like, here's more interesting world world details. Here is more characters. Here is some creative ideas with those characters. Here's we're gonna make them suffer in interesting ways. Uh, that I come around thinking like season three is almost, I would argue, almost the perfect season of television. However, it only works because we've watched them get here. Like, I don't think I could show a friend or a partner or whatever, somebody like season three without the rest of this show. So like Mm -hmm. to basically answer your question, this season works the best. And that's in part because it comes third. 
Right. And because it, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I feel like also being only eight episodes is to its benefit here, yes. to be honest, because there's very little room for for chaff or kind of delaying the inevitable. Because I felt like um, narratively, a major issue I had with season two in retrospect is that we spend so much time anticipating where season two is going. Um, And in this one, we have this air of anticipation over the whole thing of like the apocalypse is on its way, but they managed to make every individual episode such an engaging character study uh, that has its own stakes that we're not feeling like we're being delayed quite as much as I felt at points in season two. Yeah. Um, so the victory lap. It's, I say that this one's a victory lap, but that's in part because they made the journey interesting. They realized that right, right. the journey can be as interesting as the destination, whereas occasionally it felt, and maybe you felt this more as it being your first time, that season two was like, it had an end goal in mind and just like kind of eschewed a lot of interesting ideas just to get us there. Yeah. Uh, there were lots of scenes that are just like built to, get us to the ending which was great and like memorable and and important but ultimately i'm not like remembering a lot of the middle of season two other than like little weird parts like the scene with the paddle obviously an international assassin uh but like season three there is like no it's all killer no filler you know yeah but like i said it has it had to get there by being struggling for a while and that's one of the interesting things about talking about tv is like do you view the show as a whole do you talk about episodes individually or is it one like cohesive thing um, right. so let's uh talk about this episode specifically and what we liked and disliked about it um mm-hmm. up top we do have nora and kevin sexually very sexually talking cremation in the tub mm-hmm. we also get the origin story of kevin's beard which is a question i didn't think would be answered but there we very, go this is a, a esoteric reference but um lost features its main character jack uh and he has these like weird tattoos that people questioned and and debated a lot for a while. Uh, And it took them until like season four or five, or I don't remember when exactly they did a whole filler episode about how he got his tattoos. And it's like the stupidest episode of the show. It's often considered the worst episode. And the beard thing reminded me of that, where it's like they did it in a scene by not, if they did a whole episode that ended with Kevin shaving the beard, that's like you said, if this was 10 episodes, I would have been like, this is so stupid. But for Nora to just be like, I think you would look sexier with a beard. And then he's like, all right, sounds good. That's perfect. That's all I needed to know. Thank you, guys. I really appreciated that. Yeah. And it, it's it's funny how they need that to set up like there's beard Kevin and no beard Kevin. And uh, that's thematically, narratively significant in this episode. Exactly. Yeah. It, and and apparently through had to um wear had to shave between certain takes and days of filming which i thought was fascinating how like, fast were, does this guy grow facial hair what well i think he like had the beard filmed the bearded scenes and then shaved and, and then shaved and filmed scenes. that makes sense yeah um also people are curious uh between this episode and uh, this podcast recording the previous one i re-listened to the episode of the podcast um too long didn't watch where alan sepinwall brought on rob hubel to watch the leftovers which was the seedling that pl- was planted in my head and led to the chats overs happening that mm-hmm. podcast episode fun fact uh and he specifically corrects hubel and says that it's through not thorough which i'm i'm willing to take my mediocre knowledge of french debates that as well it could be probably be either 
I've heard it both ways, but I'm just playing around with names. They're all, you know, pronounce it however you want. Um, anyways, so we, we learn about the beard. We get some interesting talk of, like I said, about like, how do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? And then uh, I believe Nora's one who says, okay, I'll stuff you because Kevin wants to be uh, taxidermied, joking, jokingly. Um, and it's just very like, like uh, they managed to make a dark conversation uh, intimate and sexual in a way that feels not like corny, but just the way that couples can talk to each other uh, when they're trying to be intimate. Um, and I like that a lot about it. And it helps us emotionally get ready for the way that they set up the uh, the the dive back into international assassin world where uh, this was all that's all happening while Kevin is attempting to drown himself. Uh, mm -hmm. Kevin mm -hmm. Sr. thinks that he's not going to do it anymore, but he actually like started doing it. Uh, as in, like, drowning himself. And they're like, no, wait, we wanted to do it with you. The whole point was that we, like, did it together and we, like, told you everything we need to tell you. Um, and so you get this wonderful scene where all of the the primary characters with Kevin are like, here's the thing I want you to do when you die, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, so Kevin Sr., of course, is like, you need to talk to Christopher Sunday and get the last song so that you can play it on the ocarina and help free Zelda. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a Majora's Mask situation if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, like basically. A fucked up, is. kind of racist Majora's Mask. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it has, John, yeah, this does have. Sorry, this does have. The, as somebody who's played an hour or two of Majora's Mask, uh, you know, it's like we're in see all the same characters in a dream world kind of thing. Exactly. Mm, wow, I like I, that. I like that. These are the majorified versions of people that we know. And you're mm -hmm. like, this is uncanny. And it's also about death and like letting yourself, you know, accepting death and whatnot. It's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael, the child doesn't want anything. I loved that. What a nice moment for Michael when he's like, Kevin, what do you, or Kevin asks him, Michael, what do you want me to say? And he's like, no, I'm good. There's nobody I mm -hmm. need to talk to. It's also a factor that like Michael hasn't experienced a lot of like death in his life other than with his sister. And there's no, like thing he wants to tell Evie. Mm -hmm. um, but John is the one who, who again just reiterates like tell her she's loved and that's all I ask for. Very simple. Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course Grace is also like find out what happened with my kids shoes and like where they and like what's their situation. Tell them I miss them etc. Yeah. Um, so we're back. We're back in international, international assassin world. The same music cue plays. We're Kevin Harvey again. At first, it feels like we're just going to do a lot of the same beats. And then uh, Kevin is saved from that same Russian man from the other episode uh, uh -huh. by a man with a sniper rifle who reveals himself, Magellan, to be... Dean? Dean, question mark? <laughs> What's up, Dean? It's a nice little... There's no like resolution to Dean. It's just he's here again. He's here again. Uh, that's kind of fun. I like seeing him. I, I like that the actor had things to do. I also like that he looked older. He looked like a little bit yeah. noticeably older. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. Time has passed in the leftovers world. Um, right. So this is where Kevin puts on the pilot sweatpants uh, that show his weird, his thing. And uh, we learn a couple of rules, new rules to this world, which is, um, so he's uh, hired to kill the president. Uh, he needs to be careful. It's dangerous. He's the only one who can do it. And mm -hmm. under no circumstances should he look at any reflective surfaces in the world. Uh, because, you know, reflecting, looking at yourself, it's very symbolic, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we start getting just kind of like a cavalcade of cameos uh, of like, this character is going to be this person. One of my guesses when I first started seeing this was that the president was going to be like 
Tom or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really wish they got back Chris Ilka or Margaret Margaret Qualley like at all in person. Besides yeah, the phone calls and certified. Yeah, kind of a conspicuous lack of Tom and Jill in mm-hmm. this season overall. Um, I feel like that's the one thing that I'm kind of bummed about just because the show started in season one as the story of a family divided, right? And we were like following these four characters uh, who were affected in very different ways by the yeah. depart- post-departure world. And it kind of was just like, yeah, but what about Kevin, though? He's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Let's make him the main character of a lot of stuff. Um. It's so made it's me realize that I just it's made me realize that I never cared that much about like Kevin specifically in his story and what he feels about things. Cuz a lot of this episode yeah. is like and maybe that's harsh cuz it's like he I think that 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 Theroux does like a decent job or does a good job honestly of mm-hmm. of reacting to people super well. Uh yeah. and shows his affection has like great chemistry with Carrie Coon but like when it's just about like, yep, Kevin still is worried about the dissolution of the family unit. I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, we already, I already know this. This is where I start to feel like we're retreading old ground, and we could yeah. have done stuff about his kids or something. Right? Yeah, it thematically doesn't fully so like it. It's this weird thing where it's trying to revive these questions from previous episodes. It's trying to finally lay them to rest. It's trying to convince us that Kevin is going to become the guy in the finale who like obsessively tries to find Nora for decades or whatever. Um, And yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, you know, I think the Kevin character and like the questions that he represents work the best in the context of these other characters from the Garvey family where Kevin is specifically the person who like wants the family unit, but is woefully bad at, at doing it. He like pushes people away. He sabotages, he fucks things up. Um, and that works in contrast with Jill who like wants everybody to be together, but is like frustrated that she has no control. And Tom who has like run away prematurely to try to start his own life, but, can't take care of himself and Lori who you know has this calling or obligation or or inner struggle that nobody else can understand like they all kind of fit together in a compelling way and I think when you just keep rehashing that Kevin is a guy who has issues like being intimate and pushes people away it's like yeah I know hasn't he gotten a little better or Mm-hmm. is there a new take on this and i don't know that the episode has like a new answer necessarily beyond kevin just fully finally laying to rest like there is no other world there is no story where i have like a higher purpose it's kind of like what we saw in the garveys at their best right where mm-hmm. he has that conversation with his dad by the pool yeah. um and his dad is like look you're always looking for some kind of higher calling it doesn't exist like be a family man basically um and this i think is the episode where kevin finally accepts that that is his reality that like he isn't a messiah he doesn't have a destiny he's just a guy and that's cool but also i feel like we kind of did that at the end of season two you know so yes 
Yeah, it, it's it's. I would say that it's a problem with the first half of this episode almost, and it's why I don't really feel the need to like go into all of this because, like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's the. We know he's the president. Uh, that's the reveal is when he does look through reflecting surfaces, he switches places with him himself and himself, mm, which is uh, a great device. So cool. It immediately made me want like, I'm, I'm like, why isn't there a video game that is exactly this? Even like, like a multiplayer game where you're assassinating yourself. And whenever you look at something, it flips you. And like maybe another player controls the other guy. And then as soon as you flip, you have to take over and protect yourself. But when you flip back, you have to kill yourself. Like, I just, I feel like there's potential in there, even though it'd be super complicated. Because um, it feels very like mechanical and rich in that way, and so we have white suit Kevin, who is the president, and uh, he's the clean shaven one. And then we have beard Kevin in black. Uh, is that correct? No, it's is it is it white suit is bearded. Beard beard Kevin is the president. Yes, beard Kevin is the president in white. Uh, black suit Kevin is clean shaven. He's the assassin. He's got a sniper. Mm-hmm. He's sneaking into the facility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn kind of the parallels in this world, and we start to get hints at what we're going to talk about in the finale. Um, Christopher Sunday here is the Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, I read some trivia that this probably suggests that these visions, these like scenarios Kevin's going through are real because if they were in his head, he wouldn't know what Christopher Sunday looks like. And so maybe that's just like TV magic, like letting us, we know what he looks like. So it makes sense to us. Maybe these are just real and he's actually tapping into another world. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... The other thing that supports that is the stuff with David Burton on the earpiece where David Burton is like implying that he's God and which Kevin Kevin, never heard as well. Yeah. And Kevin has only seen him in these in this world. Right. He's never seen David Burton in real life. He doesn't know the God thing. Well, he did see him in season two. Remember on the bridge? That wasn't in real life. Oh, that wasn't in real life either. You're right. That you're absolutely right. Yeah, that was also an in, so. So this is just continuing that, uh, that universe basically. You're that's a good point. Yeah. So, but you could say like, I mean, that's the even stronger evidence because he sees David Burton before anybody he knows sees him. Because otherwise, you could argue like, well, they told him about this guy who was on the weird boat, or his dad showed him a picture of Christopher Sunday to, so that he would know what he looked like, or you know. Stuff like that. But I think there's enough evidence here that you could argue that like something is going on. There's yes. some kind of supernatural quality to this. Honestly, that's partly why I don't like this episode as much is I love ambiguity. And I that's why I like lost a lot is is sometimes they didn't give us clean answers. And this almost felt a little bit too clean, um, which I know is like exactly why people hated Lost. And that's why I don't like it because I'm contrarian to the end. Uh, but yeah, this in this version, Kevin's the president, all these people in white giving us like huge guilty remnant vibes. They're literally holding up signs that they held up in season one. It's all reminiscent in that like poetic way. Uh, and again, his campaign here, which he reads on a teleprompter, it's about disassembling the family unit piece by piece. Uh, and the first cut punch in the episode is when Liam, one of Grace's kids, is asked to read a poem because uh, he won a contest, which is hilarious. Uh, and it's a poem about not needing his family anymore. How he says, I don't need a mother or a, dad, a father anymore, which is hard. must be hard for Kevin to process. But like if this universe is his anxieties made manifest, then like, yeah, that's the saddest thing to see is this child who you didn't know. And you know how much his mother misses him is like, I don't really miss her anymore. That's like the thing that hurts Kevin the most is maybe his kids or something or the people he loved don't actually need him. Uh, 
And so Liam's not wearing shoes too. And he's like, Hey kid, why are you not wearing shoes? And he's like, well, I don't know. And doesn't answer that question. So Kevin is like very narrowly focused on getting the answers in, in regardless of everything else that's happening here. Cause we get the sense that there's conflict brewing uh, again. Ukraine comes up for the second time. The first time in international assassin with the jeopardy question. Right. Uh, we learned that Evie is in this world and she's a protester singing uh this sort of like what's what's the song again i think you had it written down love will keep us together yeah and she's a protester and and what we we learned this is again the huge hint is kevin is like hey we gotta like i'm let that girl into my car we're gonna go somewhere privately and i'm gonna talk to her uh because i need to tell her the thing that i need to tell her right he talks to her and she kind of has a they had a reverse version of what happened in real life she says everybody in my family died to a missile strike or from a nuclear strike so you start getting the sense that maybe this death world is a weird, sad parallel or reflective surface of our world. And she's like, what do you mean my dad says that I'm still loved? He's been dead for a while. And that's like, you know, horribly traumatizing for me, you asshole. Uh, how did you feel about all of that? And since you I don't know how much you knew about the next episode, but like, did you start to get the sense that something was up with all of that? I wasn't sure how to feel about it because, you know, I think... What this episode has to do is it has to retain the it's just like the leftovers has set out for itself. This is a show where we're not going to answer stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all of these characters are saying, oh, Kevin, he can come back from the dead. He can talk to the dead. Let's have him do that. And so the episode has to like make it so that he can't do it. Um, and it kind of just like feels like a bit of a wet fart when he wakes up from his first death and grace yeah. is like where are their shoes and he's like i don't know i don't know <laughs> i'm not sure and um you know i think the evie thing is interesting because it's less about evie and her interiority because this isn't her and more about what does Kevin choose to tell John and what does John yeah. need to hear? Because essentially Kevin tells John the kind of stuff that John and Lori have been telling people, which is like, Hey, yeah, I told her she misses you. She loves you. Take that comfort and believe that it's real so that you can live. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really fascinating choice to watch play out because you know, even if we don't see real Evie, we see a character that represents the fact that, like, if Evie's soul is a thing, it is somewhere where it's not at rest for some reason. Right. And so you could either interpret this place as a kind of purgatory where her soul is, like, sorting that stuff out the way that we might have interpreted that happening for Patty um, in International Assassin. Or you could just interpret this as a place where Kevin, this is what Kevin thinks Evie is sorting out from his perspective. Yeah. And I think either way, it, it's an interesting question to debate. But ultimately, the thematically relevant thing is the fact that Kevin lies to John about what happens uh, for the sake of John's like comfort. Uh, and I think that's that's a theme that matters across both of these both of these uh, last two episodes. 
And John, like, first of all, I want to compare compare the Evie stuff again to the finale and this idea of like telling somebody that you saw stuff and then like, is that comforting to them? Is that going to accomplish a goal that you want or is it real? What does that even mean? Why does it matter if it's real or not? If it feel, makes you feel good, then who cares? Because John doesn't say anything there. And that's like his last major scene in the show is going like, wow, I'm really glad that my daughter still loved me. And uh, I feel like my grief is quote unquote complete because he was told the thing that he needed to hear. Right. Even if even if it wasn't necessarily true. Uh, but we saw it. And that's why this feels kind of sad as we know that Kevin lied to him. It's not like like Nora later where we don't know. Um, so anyways, getting back to this episode briefly here the flood is getting really bad so they had to pull him out the flood has begun it started raining very heavily so they bring it into the bathroom um michael is the only one who seems to get that maybe the reason kevin's doing all this stuff is he just wants to die uh and be taxidermied or whatever like he said at the top and this is a meaningful way to die is like you know helping others um and we get this like very t is this where we get the the sad scene where kevin senior is like Hey, I really need you to die, son. Even though that's like the hardest uh -huh. thing for a father to say. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's around this part. Yeah, I I think, yeah, it, we get the question raised of like, why Michael's like, why is he doing this? And Michael knows that before anybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think that reveals that like Michael hasn't really been believing in this stuff for a while mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And he's here for his dad's sake. Um, and yeah, then we get this exchange with Kevin and his dad, um, <laughs> that ends with Kevin senior being like, look, if I could drown myself, I totally would, man. <sighs> I hate the fact that I got to drown you. He says, I love you, son. And Kevin says, I love you too. You're going to have to hold me down. Hold me down. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so grim. And it just yeah. is like the last failing of kevin senior as a as a father right yeah, yeah. fully go you know it calls back to in um what was that episode called good day melbourne. the good day melbourne um was that the one the kevin senior episode oh the uh crazy white fellow thinking crazy white fellow thinking um it goes back to that and to kevin senior talking with matt jameson about yeah abraham it's my story uh, and about how you know, Abraham's son was an adult when he went to sacrifice him to God. And Kevin Senior fully goes through with it and fully chooses to sacrifice his son. And mm -hmm. at the end of the episode, he's living with the fact that he did that in a world where maybe he actually didn't need to mm -hmm. or it's not clear to him. Uh, so I think that's really a, a fascinating thing to watch him struggle with in the very, very end of this one. I mean, he never needed to, right? And and that well, yeah. I really want to talk a little bit about that that roof scene uh, right at the bottom, but um, I want to get there because that's kind of the conclusion to Kevin Senior's arc. Yeah. Um, as Kevin Junior is drowned in the tub, though, we get this like biometric scan on his face, and the episode kind of goes into overdrive here, pacing wise. And from here on out, I'm like fully bought in, and I love what we are about to experience uh, because Kevin and Kevin get to play like hitman against each other right here. Uh, and it's so cool. So the biometric scan is referring to the fact that the president is being led into a bunker where he can launch missiles against Ukraine, uh, which is so weird considering the present world we live in, but they couldn't have known. It's just weird. Uh, 
and you're starting to suspect, hey, isn't there something about a twin? What's going to happen with the twin? And uh, his main Secret Service guy, who is the Kevin, police officer Kevin from Australia, but now in his mind, is like, you need to scan yourself in. The only thing that works is the penis scanner. Please, your penis, sir. Over and over again, you get to hear this guy go, your penis, sir. You need to place your penis there. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, like begrudgingly does it and the guy keeps looking at it and he's like can, he's giving him the look like can you stop can you i can't do it can you stop looking um and he gets this quiz where they ask all these personal questions we learned that kevin St. jr's favorite movie is godfather part two which is predictable but disappointing in my opinion <laughs> it's just like a very basic answer mm-hmm. uh i guess i prefer it to just saying like the godfather i would have been like you all right that's fine uh and then who is your secretary of defense, which isn't a good like security question at all. But, <laughs> yeah. Because anyone could just look that up. But it does serve to make Kevin decide to the viewer, his secretary of defense is who else but Patty motherfucking Levin. Yeah. Uh, which brings us back to Ann Dowd. And we get these wonderful sets as Patty is telling him all the explanation about, you know, DEFCON and how you need to, Kevin, you, Kevin, buddy, you got to hurry up and blow up the whole world. You got to nuke the world because it's the seventh anniversary and people need to die. We're going to give them what they want and kill the whole world. Uh, and she uh, asks for privacy from the guard so that she can slap him in the face. And uh, then we learn about his VP who comes in. This is where I just felt like it was cameos for the sake of cameos. Uh, yeah. Me- Meg is his VP. She has the worst hairstyle I've ever seen in this scene. <laughs> it's like short, weird, curly bob that like looks bad. Yeah, there's like really nothing. Nothing it's going just, on. Yeah, it's just to bring Liv Tyler back for mm. a. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I think I was not at all interested in what Meg had going on in season two, and. So there wasn't really much left for them to do anything with here. She is, she becomes plot convenient here as she kind of like assists. We learn that she's the double agent helping the assassin get in. Right. Uh, the assassin who also turns out to be the volunteer because we learn about the Fisher Protocol, which was a real thing, by the way, uh, in the Cold War, Whoa. I believe. Wow. Uh, not okay. necessarily that you would like cut his heart out, but it was a fail safe. Uh, the idea being that if the president had the moral fiber to kill another human being in, with intentionality and they could do that, then only and only then could they uh, launch nuclear missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was even implemented, but this is based on a real thing that was like conceived of and written about during the mm-hmm. Cold War. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Um, something, something. Kevin has to kill himself to save others. I get it. It's a Christ metaphor. He has to kill the volunteer so that he can launch the nukes. Uh, he becomes the assassin again. He dick, he dick scans again. Uh, Meg shoots a bunch of people to get him through. Uh, he's being guided by uh, David Byrne, who calls himself God. Meg is like, I love God. God is my favorite person. And then Kevin fucking shoots Meg in the fucking forehead. <laughs> swiftly getting rid of meg from the show unceremoniously yeah we get to see christopher sunday again prime minister of australia love to see it uh this scene incredible do you believe your father can sing a song and stop the flood uh no no (laughs) then why are you here here? what are you doing here i told him it doesn't work i do the rain song i don't and it's like imagine like traveling across the the universe to do something for your dad and it's like oh he actually Uh there was a typo in his text he actually said he wanted milk not malt (laughs) malt or something like right 
Ooh, that's awkward. Ooh, Kevin's on a on a fruitless. And the thing is that that Patty points out here is that Kevin knew this. Kevin, like both mm-hmm. assassin Kevin and President Kevin, like went into this killing themselves, knowing that it was not going to do anything. Right. Uh, you keep saying that you want to go home, Kevin, Kevin, and yet you keep coming here. You keep right. doing this thing where you like die and try to save yourself, and you're like doing irreparable damage to your real life body because it feels good to help others. And right kind of like po- points out the hypocrisy of all of this international assassin stuff like in the plot mm-hmm. um but she's very happy that the two of them are uh finally meeting a little bit of trivia here she sings the patty duke show theme song um which patty duke the singer also plays at the end of the episode over the credits so you know oh, parallel that's fun circle it all comes back around mm-hmm. um and then we get the the dramatic like core of it which is just that the president and the assassin read uh, the romance novel that's been referred to at the beginning and at the end of this episode mm-hmm. uh, is the idea that it's a romance novel written. Who is it written by? Kevin. It's written by Kevin. Yeah. Can you give me the gist of what the romance novel passage is about? Basically, it's a an allegorical tale about Kevin leaving Nora, more or less. Yeah. Uh, it's he describes this like sea captain who ran away from his lady love went out to sea and is like on a boat feeling the winds of the ocean and feeling his failure at being a good enough man. And you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's very well written. The Justin, but how are you saying it? Theroux. Theroux is doing an excellent job playing, two characters who are having the same emotional reaction as each other but it like feels like rich you know it doesn't feel like he's doing the same face or something Mm -hmm. um because one is reciting it and the other's listening to it um and you know it's a very affecting scene but ultimately thematically it's it's pretty straightforward kevin feels and (laughs) assassin kevin is like here let me spell it out and he says, we really fucked up with Nora, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other Kevin's like, yeah, we did. Um, and that's what it is. kill me now. Right. Um, but, yeah, just kind of like reframing and telling us why Kevin came here. What's the thing that he's trying to sort through? What is he running from or sad about? And ultimately, it's showing us him coming to terms with the fact that, like, there isn't a kind of otherworldly solution to his problem. There isn't a grander mission. There's just him and this feeling of regret and this conviction that the thing that he wants is is to be with Nora again, if that's ever going to be possible. Um, and we see him pursue that um, fruitlessly for a long time in, <laughs> in the next episode. Yeah, and ultimately they are, and we'll talk about more about this, but they're having the same, they're coming to the same conclusion from opposite directions. You know, both of them are like, if I die or if I do the big thing, then I will figure out how to process all my grief on this world and all the people mm-hmm. that are gone, all the people that are stayed that I can't connect with. It'll all suddenly make sense. And both of them go, ah, oh, beans. Ooh, I had what I needed all along, didn't I? Um, yeah. and, it's much- <laughs> and it's each other. Uh, right? It was the friends we made along the way. huh? Ah, Damn nuts. It. it really was. It was Fuck. the girlfriend that I had. Shoot. Yeah. Um. But yeah, let, I, I want to talk way more about that in the second half. But for here, mm-hmm. uh, we get a really great, gruesome scene of Kevin killing Kevin. I didn't like this. It, I, no, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's like too much. Too there's much. some elegance to it. The way that he, they're both crying and like 
you know, he's pulling the heart out, but like him scooping it, I was like, oh, I don't want to watch. I hate it. Mm. Patty and Kevin step outside and we get an absolutely stunning shot of the nukes landing on the city. Yeah, incredible. This was worth a lot of, of the gore of the last scene. It was like, you want to watch these two people in white just like staring up as missiles like slow motion fly into the world and blow everything up. Mm-hmm. And Kevin wakes up. He wakes up in the real world and we're doing, If I'm not going to spoil anything specifically, but the video game Kentucky Route Zero features a scene almost identical to this, uh, which is funny because it came out, I think the final episode came out three years after this episode where we're standing amongst the ruins of a like destroyed house. The biblical flood has come and gone and we're all alive. John and Michael are like sleeping in each other's arms. Kevin Sr. is on top of a roof and... I mean, did you catch this, Magellan? They are the Millerites from season three, episode one, from that first right. scene. Right. Uh, Kevin Sr. says, I don't think I'm ready to come down. Now what? Which yeah. is like his best moment of the series. He, We finally yeah. got it. You did everything you needed to do. For what? We had the people we needed. The world wasn't going to end. Everything was going to be fine. We just needed to live through it. I've been saying this about the characters. The characters have been saying it about themselves. Yeah, and we fade out as Patty Duke plays the end of the world. Yeah, uh, I love a sad apocalypse. You know, Lindelof and company have often said that season three is about like what happens after the world ends, or after the world doesn't end. In this case, right. Uh, and so to finally see it, and like this flood that's been like hyped up by Kevin Senior, like we all we too wanted to believe it. Like mm-hmm. this is gonna do something. We need the song, and we got to do collect the, the the notes and blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and. It was a it was a really bad flood. That was it. <laughs> yep. What but what poetry once again. So yeah. Uh, we're left. All of our characters are now left in the present day, learning to pick up the pieces with what's left, uh, which I think is a pretty elegant place to leave. John, Kevin, Senior, Grace, and Michael. Yeah. Uh, I think that Kevin still has one more checkpoint he has to reach. And uh, that is partly what the Book of Nora is about. So, mm. again, really, really glad that I watched both these. We got to watch, watch both of these together because I like. I was like, we got like 99% fulfilled. I just need one more thing. Just one more <laughs> question. Mm-hmm. And we got there. So, um, yeah. before we talk about that, stray notes? So, I do have some. Let me check. We, we learned what it was that David Burton whispered to Kevin yeah. And it was him saying to Kevin that Kevin is the most powerful man in the world. Did we need to learn this? This is one of those things you could have just not. I agree. It, you could have just not. Like, it, it could have just been him saying, like, I'm God. And yeah. maybe that would have been better. I thought that's what it was. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't think this was, like, a that clever of a moment. But it was answered. So might as well say that. Um, I love... <laughs> Kevin's way of like faking his way through the presidency because he doesn't know what a DEFCON is, but he knows how to tell people to go fuck themselves and he does it a lot. <laughs> and that's like seems to work. Yeah. Um, so that's Correct pretty president. fun. 2017, making fun of the president. I love to do it. Yeah. The the guard the guy, did you say this? The guy who tells him to put the dick on the dick it's thing. It's the security guard. It's the cop from It's the cop. You said yes. that. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it took me a second to place that guy. I was like, who your penis, are you? Sir. Yeah, I Pl- know place you. Place your penis. Um, 
I liked seeing Patty again. At first, I was like, okay, Patty's here again. Why are we doing that? But then when Patty's sort of like, why did did you bring me back? You brought (laughs) me back to help you. I'm here to help you. Like, let me help you. And there's something about her being the Secretary of Defense, like defending, taking care of Kevin. That's kind of interesting. Um, and and just the inherent tragedy comedy of, you know, you brought me back to help and all you're doing is refusing my help. <laughs> like right. he spends the whole right. time being like, shut up, Secretary of Defense. I don't want to blow the world up. And she's like, dog, it's the way you end the episode. And he's like, no, I don't mm-hmm. want to do it. And then finally mm-hmm. goes, maybe I should blow the world up. Yeah. Um, and I think in a way what's thematically compelling to me about this, like blowing the world up moment is they're kind of symbolically blowing up the post-departure world because this is like everybody was like, okay, something's going to happen on the seventh anniversary of the departure. Something. Uh, like a question's going to be answered. It's going to happen again or the people are going to come back and then nothing happens. And the world has had kind of like the final plausible moment before everyone's like, okay. I guess we really do have to accept that this is never going to be answered. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get to the finale, the way that Kevin and Nora talk about the departure, it's kind of just like a thing that people don't really consciously think about or address anymore. It's still there. It still has had its effects on the world. But from this point forward, we're not living in an an immediate post-departure world. We're living in a world that has... Uh, moved on to be something else. And like this world of the guilty remnant and of Kevin's particular association with the departure is is over as of uh, this alternate world being nuked. Totally. Um, yeah. Well said. Hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's what I got for this. Yeah, one. It's, it's, it's the departure has become the thing you talk about over tea. It's like, oh, remember? Right. Yeah. It's yeah where, where, were you, where were you when... Yeah. Yep. 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 It's it's well done. I, like I do. Like I said, I come at the end of this, enjoying uh, the this episode quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I did feel like it, there were points where, like you know, even on my summary, I'm like, yep, skip over that, skip over that. We're treading ground. Whatever. Right. Uh, it's funny. It's interesting. I liked seeing David Gulpilil again. Uh, I liked seeing Kevin Senior's arc close out. I didn't think they were gonna fi- figure that out, and they did. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I wish they got a little bit more with John, but I understand why they didn't. That's what I got. Yeah. So let's all take, as I always say, a deep, deep breath uh, and think about what really happened before we start answering some questions, because we will be right back after this brief musical break to answer it all with our discussion of the Book of Norm. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody's worrying about where they're gonna go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. Think out, just let the mystery be. Some say once you're gone, you're gone forever, and some say you're gonna come back. Everybody is wondering 
welcome back to the Chatsovers. The second episode and the final episode that we watched this week was season three, episode eight of The Leftovers, the very last Leftovers episode. There's nothing left over the after this. It's called The Book of Nora. It was written by Damon Lindelof and Tom Speziali, directed by Mimi Leader. It aired on June 4th, 2017. Alan, what happened in The Book of Nora? At the same time, John, a lot of things happened and nothing happened. In this episode, Nora wishes to step into Dr. Eden and Dr. Becker's machine. But what are the consequences? Meanwhile, a man named Kevin visits and dances with her at a wedding years later. The very next day, he meets her again in her home, and they have a frank conversation about love, loss, and answers. Hmm. I want to start. How much of this did you spoil? Correct. That's what I want to ask. That's what I wanted to tell you. Yeah. So it's wild. This is gonna. This is so interesting. Believe me. Okay. I don't know why you wouldn't believe me. Uh, I knew that this is. Oh, I quote unquote <laughs> knew that the departed went to a world where ninety eight percent of people disappeared. When That's did what you I know learned that? When I listened to the Alan Seppenwall pod, I've known that uh, for this whole time. Okay. Yeah. And. What's wild is I've like told friends like I spoil the leftovers for myself. If you're not gonna watch it, I'll tell you the spoiler. And I've like DM'd them that spoiler, and they're like, "Are you sure, or is it implied?" And I was like, "To my knowledge, it's real. It's definitely real." And like, <laughs> what a what a beautiful experience I had in, in watching this episode. <laughs> what an exciting experience that and and you had told me. Now we can tell the folks at home that yeah. you heard that this was simply the future. And I was like, no, Majon, it's not only the future. It's obviously it's the dimension. Like this Australia stuff is happening in the dimension where everyone died. That's why it's so sparse. And mm. this ep- I had a plot twist moment in the finale mm. of the Leftovers, y'all. I thought I knew it, and I was wrong. I'm s so, I was so happy that I was wrong. I've never been that happy about that before. Yeah. That's great. Um yeah, because this whole episode you could believe like Nora's in this other world and Kevin followed her here, or it's like the hotel where this isn't real Kevin. This is like a different Kevin and or maybe Nora's dead or who knows. That's why like, Lori's here. Is this the purgatory? Right. The episode lets you like wonder for a while before it gives an answer. I mean, answers, answer schmancers is kind of the theme of this episode. Yes. In a way. Um, but oh, yeah, it's I, one of the best fucking finales I've ever seen. Sorry, I can yeah, finally say that. It's really, really good. I, for once, spoiled less than than you, and I'm uh-huh. proud of myself for that. The Me only too. thing I knew is that this was far in the future because I was naughty and was on the Leftovers wiki at one point and saw something about Kevin being like way older than oh. he was. And I was like, oh, okay. At some point, characters get old, old and we're in the future. We have like a time jump. But I thought that all of season three was going to be like future season or something. Yeah. Um, and it was just, just this episode here at the end. Oh, and I even saw the thumbnail on HBO and I was like, Oh, maybe they have like a one final dance in the future. And again, they did, but it wasn't what I, how I thought it was going to be. Everything was different than what I thought. And yet I was surprised and impressed along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a I had a bit of a cry when I finished. I slumped into my couch and just kind of like sat in complete darkness at like one in the morning and like wept wept for a bit. 
mm-hmm. but it was a different crying than uh sorry to spoil this for you Majel. that it was the end of the episode <laughs> when i cried <laughs> i asked Majel if you could guess when i cried and it's the end of the episode um it's a different cry than certified because certified like tapped into like a thing in my soul that i like right. don't share with a lot of people right. uh whereas the book of nora is just like like i could show my dad this episode this is just yeah. like beautifully depicted romance and like grief and love and everything that is like you it becomes universal it it shows that the leftovers is a story that's universal it's not relegated to people who survived a departure it's like this is mm-hmm. a story that anyone can relate to yeah. And I found it deeply comforting and also satisfying in a way that so many finales fail to be. Right. Just like, damn, you guys did it. You stuck the landing. Yeah. And I think what makes this one such a good finale is the fact that the last episode was like so bloated and full of random stuff that this yeah. one, like I was saying in the first half, it only has to do two things, three things, really. It has to resolve, like, okay, Kevin and Nora, do they get back together? It has to answer, did did Nora go through the machine? What was on the other side? And it has to address why did the departure happen or where did they go or something. It has to address this sort of, like, global thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all this episode has to do. And so it has 60 minutes to just like play in that sandbox and do those three things, but really take its time with them. And this ends up being a beautiful, beautiful episode of television as a result of having such simple goals set out for it and having so much like meticulous character work to play off of from having like several prior episodes be Nora episodes. And now we get to do one last Nora episode having all of this stuff to draw upon with with Matt and with Kevin and with Lori um so this is an episode that does stuff that only TV can really do and I think yeah. that's what's so special about it 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 actually kind of pushes the medium for god 2017 was such a good year for TV holy crap between this and the return sheesh oh my god yeah wow amazing time to be watching shows um and yeah like i want to just track the 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 journey of nora through this one because i think like singularly focusing on this character that i mean think about this dude in the pilot she's in it for a grand total of what two minutes she has her speech Uh right right and now she's the central character of the ending and i've read stuff that like the creators wanted to eventually do that like that's the thing that the like Lindelof and co wanted to do and that Parada was into so long as they never answered things explicitly. Cause in his, in his point of view, and we'll talk a lot about like whether or not things are explicit here, uh, answering what happened to the people who departed firmly is like answering what happens after you die. Like, don't do that. Yeah. Don't give that to someone. Yeah. It, it's comforting. And it's nice to hear it. The way you tell a kid what happens when they die, you tell them like a, a version of it, but like, don't say it. And, I, I was reading some Reddit thread. I, I got to find it for you to put in the show notes uh, where sure. and I don't know how substantiated this is, but somebody was talking about how at one point Lindelof said that he wanted to show the baby in the pilot going to the other Sam. world from the baby's perspective. Yeah. So we didn't get that, which is good. They ran but, out of time to film it. 
They that was what the thing was they ran out of daylight. It, like uh, it was it was Peter Burry oh, filming the pilot. No, really. And they were like, we're gonna film it. We definitely need to put. We're gonna put it in the pilot or something. We're gonna like show it or put it in the finale. And then they were like, we can't film it today. Never mind. Don't don't worry about it. And they didn't <laughs> do it, which is based honestly because I didn't Could. need to see it. Yeah, it would have been bad. It would have been a bad choice. I think. Any anything, any moment you show, and this is so clever, is the editing in the production of this episode allows you to to let the mystery be, you know, to be corny here. Um, and I want to say before we get into the details of it, like, for real, for real, folks, you should be watching the show along with us if you're able to. Um, even though we've already said, like, some of the big stuff in this episode, you should watch it. Because we're going to talk about it, we're going to get into, like, some nitty gritty and, like, give our interpretations at the end. But... That's the magic of stuff like of television and of art, right? Is you make your own interpretation. It's like the same thing with when we talked about Twin Peaks, coincidentally. Watch it yourself. Make your decision about the ending. Come back and listen to us talk about it. Don't let us taint your opinion of it. Um, because it's really beautifully open-ended, and I want to hear other people's interpretations. So, let's dive into it, yeah? Um, the first 15 minutes of this episode are a nonstop series of gut punches. I love it. I keep saying that <laughs> yeah. phrase over and over again this season, and yet this is the hardest punches of all. Yeah. Um, we start with an inc- like what you described as a masterclass from Carrie Coon when she's doing this uninterrupted shot of the statement that she's watched oh on her laptop God. so often. Wow. Uh, she states her name and her age. She states her family and shows the paper. <laughs> and they ask her to do it a few times. Dr. Becker, I think, is the one who's like, you don't believe it. And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, you're saying it and you're gun- you got here and you did all this. You don't believe it. And, and Nora's like, what the fuck, guys? I literally like stole things and did illegal things and like chased you guys around the world for this. I believe it. I want mm-hmm. it. And they're like, all right. And she reads it again. And just the difference in delivery between the version where they say that and the version that that is the ending of the scene says so much. You know, yeah. that's like all of Gnora's character development happened in between those takes, basically. Right. Uh, really incredible to see. Really hard to, like I said, really hard to just describe to you guys. Um, but she is led into the machine uh, or led towards the machine to the, the truck. Um, before all the stuff with Matt, we get a little detail that I thought was really beautiful, which is that um, the machine leaves behind a fossil. Or it's mm-hmm. supposed, again, and I everything I say that's happening, this is just like every other finale we talk about is like questionable does the machine leave behind a fossil or did they just make fossils don't know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they showed us a wild like twisted little model in like a fishbowl with a doll to explain to her what the mechanism is it's very birth-like obviously you're Mm -hmm. being reborn into another world fluid Mm -hmm. is filling your is going to be filling the room around you don't breathe in the whole time can you hold your breath for a minute it's it's liquid with metal in it so like you could die if you, right. if you inhale it's it, like ir- irradiated or whatever yeah you're gonna get irradiated when you do it and then we're gonna flash some lights and make some sounds and then bam you'll be done mm-hmm. and you have to like strip down naked and all that too so it's so it's just a birth metaphor like i i've been spending so much of this show going what does the machine nora gets into look like i thought it would be somehow more wild and epic it turns out they based it on the large hadron collider that's like what this room and mm, they actually had sense. consultants describe it yeah yeah yeah, and I, I found it really compelling that the event chamber chamber is so womb-like at the end yes. of the day and that Nora has to get into a fetal position um, because so much of her story is about motherhood and, you know, it, it 
positions her um, as the child being born. And, you know, it's just like kind of a, a rich uh, way to do this that I like. It's elegant. Lot. You know, yeah. it, it, it reads like when you say it out loud as like kind of corny, but it's it's portrayed really nicely. And I loved again that the machine wasn't this like big. Compli- it is a complicated thing, but it's in the back of a truck. Like, you know, it's a or it's a facility. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like they have this huge lab and all these like scientists. It's just Nora silently and alone walks naked into this thing. Um, but before she does that, um, she has a final moment of sorts with uh, her brother. And you remember how I got really emotional yesterday, not yesterday, last week uh, about how Matt is her family and she wasn't able to like reconcile that she did have family who loved her. They heard you. They, <laughs> and they, they wrote said, a we scene. Got you. We'll do exactly that. We'll make them the most siblings they've ever been. And, uh, you know, she references the fact that as a kid, he said she was the bravest girl in the world uh, when she would be afraid of things. And they play a little game of Matt libs. Um, which is just traditional Mad Libs, but writ- Mad Libs, but written by Matt. Okay, here we go. Nora Elizabeth Jameson Durst, age 417, <laughs> was vaporized by a consortium of international physicists last Tuesday outside Never Never Land. Miss Durst was born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, mm-hmm. where she returned after college to squeeze a family. <laughs> her spiffy husband, Doug Durst, and her beloved geese, Jeremy and Aaron. Admired by her co-workers, she was a longtime employee at the Department of the Sudden Diarrhea. That's disgusting. <laughs> In her spare time, Miss Durst enjoyed crosswords, exposing frauds, and pole dancing. <laughs> <laughs> she is survived, at least temporarily, by her terminally ill gecko, Matthew Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> As she lives on in our memories and in the great Antonio in the sky. There will be no funeral or memorial service. Oh, God bless Matt Libs. I feel like this is a thing you would do. Whether you'd be Matt or whether you'd be Nora. I loved this so much. It's so sweet. And it's it's such a beautiful depiction of siblings and... Uh, and how you like connect with people when talking about death and then moving on. Uh, and Matt frankly reveals that he is in fact not afraid of what's going to happen to her. He's a man of faith. He always has been. He's still, he's been challenged by that recently, but he himself is actually afraid of dying. And now he has his cancer, his back. He's acknowledging, yeah, I'm the saddest thing I'm worried about is that my son is going to grow up without me, uh, mm-hmm. which is hard to rehear. Yeah, and uh, and in- interestingly, he follows that by saying he's even more scared of living and right. facing people and admitting that he doesn't have answers to things and what's his place in the world from this point forward. Similar to what we saw Kevin Senior going through in the last episode, um, and I think you know, as you were saying, this season, these last couple episodes are about that question of like, well, what do you do when the world doesn't end? What do you do when you continue to live and survive? What's next? And that's as scary or even scarier of a thing to Matt as the prospect of dying and missing the thing that that's next. Exactly. And like hearing the follow-up about Matt uh, in the other, the quote unquote, the other world uh, was like really beautiful as well. Um, But 
this isn't the last that we hear of Matt because they say their goodbyes, they hug, and the people are like, are you ready? And he says, of course she's ready. She's the bravest girl in the world, uh, which is beautiful. Love that. Got a little choked up there, of course. Um, and then we get some interesting stuff. So she actually goes in. We have a beautiful minute of like, appreciation for the human body as as Nora steps naked into the machine. And it's just like like rendered as if there's this is just a body. This is just like a thing that holds flat that flesh that holds a soul in it that is walking into oblivion confidently with its head held high. And it's almost clinical. You know, it's like walking into an MRI machine, like I said before last week. Uh, except mm-hmm. not literally because it's a big orb with that fills with fluid. Uh, and he tells her one more time over the speaker that he loves her just to get that in there. Yeah. Um, and then things get interesting, right? So the, the rooms, the, the machine starts filling with liquid. And at this point, I want to reference something that is in the script that I think okay. I can depict pretty specifically, but is important for me to mention here. So the script direction for this moment when Nora opens her mouth because she fills a fluid and then she opens her mouth at the end is quote. Mm. She opens her mouth almost as if she's about to shout something at the top of her air starved lungs. And then we dash dash, uh, smash to blue. Uh, her discussions, Mimi leader said of her discussion with Carrie Coon, our discussions were the following. Let's do it as if you're not going out at least until the last second. And then I did have her do takes where she does yell something just to get that first syllable and uh, Parada said that Leader and Kuhn had given them, quote, both versions to use, and we'll see in the editing room which one makes sense. The one we got is barely noticeable that Nora opens her mouth at the end. Mm-hmm. It's There's awesome. some theories that people have about what it is that she's about to say, which I guess we'll talk about later. Yeah. But the what it's just long enough that you can be like, oh, she might have said something. She might have not said something. She might have just been like, uh, had a last minute hesitation. Maybe she changed her mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so you have you have something to think about, and then the episode takes a pivot, and we're in what we think is another world, and there are lots of sheep, and there are so few people in this world. Mm-hmm. We see these are basically just the exact scenes that we watched uh, in the beginning of the season, mm-hmm. um, where you know the 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 nun asks Sarah if she knows a Kevin because he came by looking for her, and then uh, we actually move forward. And a lot of this episode is like they said in the in the directors like filmed it like a western. Mm-hmm. Uh, and normally you would film something like this with really melancholy music or really like adventuring music or something. Most of this episode is scored by Billy Ho- is, is Billy Holiday music, which is like really romantic and beautiful and like makes you feel comfortable and not like you're worried about what's going to happen next. Uh, which I found really nice because the music kind of like hints at where the episode's going is like right because it often contrasts with how Nora's feeling in the moment she's anxious about the fact that Kevin's here she's gets trapped in the bathroom like this is a very stressful scary episode for Nora yeah Um, and that frenetic nature of her actions is kind of undercut by the the vibe of the music because the music is expressing i think ultimately what are her innermost feelings but those feelings are masked by the kind of classic nora like fuck you <laughs> skin on top of them she's built up years of of anger it's i yeah. mean literally the song that plays when kevin comes by is the man i love by billy holiday like <laughs> right. right so 
my jaw dropped dude i did not know kevin was coming back even though i saw the old man kevin thing i was like oh that's how he comes back and again remember where i'm at watching this episode i'm like mm-hmm. kevin went through kevin sure. found out that nora's left he he got out of the you know australia and then he or he went to the machine he must have gone through that's mm-hmm. wild. wow wow i guess they're gonna both live in the feud the other world together and that's how i thought about it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. There are background details. The doves that Nora's taking care of seem to stop arriving for some reason. She feels like something's kind of off. She had There was apparently going to be way more of that filmed, and then they kind of edited around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he tells her some details about his, his situation that he, um, you know, was just like in the area. And, oh, I, I asked a woman where who you, if anybody knew Nora. And then it turned out, wow, how lucky the nun knew you. And uh, that worked out. And I'm really glad. And I want to take you to a dance tonight. He says, if I didn't ask you to the dance tonight, I would never forgive myself. And Magellan, I got to tell you, I've never seen Justin Theroux look so happy as he does in yeah, this episode. I know. <laughs> it like made the me grinning. so sad. It yeah. was so cute. Especially when you learn why. But he's like so doughy and like he's yeah. the happy. You know, Nora, a lot of times it's been like Nora is the one that pulls him to do things. And mm. yet now it's kevin is the one that's like come on like let's go to the dance like i'm you know he's kind of like a dopey little little guy he's in love Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i thought at this point in the episode i uh, maybe we're in purgatory or something or what i realistically thought was kevin has amnesia or something like that yeah and he by su- in some way he found Nora maybe he had this intuitive sense of where to look or someone pointed him in this direction but like yeah Kevin has amnesia he doesn't remember their relationship he doesn't remember stuff from the show so you were and, in Nora's shoes here yeah I, I mean Nora I don't think buys it for a second maybe mm-hmm. a, a little bit or she's freaked out or something and she's like maybe something's wrong um and then we get on the phone with Lori and then that's where I'm like okay Lori's being really cryptic she's like oh that doesn't sound like Kevin and that further confirmed for me like something's up with Kevin that would cause him to act strangely uh and so I was surprised later in the episode when Kevin says okay fine I I was making it up. I know who you are. It's me. Hey, baby, how are you? Uh, I'm pissed. Let's talk about uh, our relationship real quick. Um, because I I was sort of like, okay, believing uh, what Kevin was saying. And then that, that kind of fading away as the episode was going on. I love that. I think that's a really fun way to enjoy it, to experience the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, <laughs> I was so bought in to this being the other world still. This is when I started to doubt it. Cause I'm like, wait, you know, Lori either died and is not here or she's alive and she's not here. So like, why is she here? Okay. I guess she's Nora's therapist. Is this the, is this the afterlife? My, my, my theories right now are, is Lori in the afterlife or did she somehow land in the scuba suit in a spot that allowed her? Cause you know, how they said like, there are like certain spaces <laughs> yeah. where you can go. Yeah. I thought yeah. she did that. I was like, no, that would be so stupid. Don't think that. Why? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so, I'm making up every excuse for this. Yeah. This this Lori call is great. It is. Yeah. And uh, I mean, ha- you know, you were hoping that Lori would make the choice to live 
um, a few episodes ago. So, yeah, and once it seemed like she did, I was like really happy about it. And it yeah, seems I was like she's figured things that. out. Yeah. Um, she seems like she's in a, a really good place. She's still with John, it seems like, from what Kevin tells us later. She has a little kid with her who's her uh, grandchild, which is nice. It's Jill's daughter, I believe. Um, isn't that cute? So Lori's hair's in... kind of different now. She's got her hair's graying. Yeah. Um, and I, I like this relationship between Lori and Nora that, that has seemingly developed in the time that we missed where Laura Lori is like Nora's go-to person yeah. um, and therapist and stuff. Yeah. I like you want to know some fun, fun details? I, I read a lot of details about this one because I was like, I'm obsessed with this finale. Yeah. Uh, this, there were more hints that this is the far future uh, that were kind of edited around slightly. Um, one that made it into the episode is that the payphone that uh, Nora calls her from is solar powered. So they have solar powered okay. payphones. Sure. Which, it's like literally a pan over and you're like, that's a solar panel. The other one is that Lori's cell phone is like super futuristic. Um, oh, but really? Andy, I'm Andy Brennan covers the phone out. for. Well, they didn't even edit it. She just covers it the whole time. But it, I, I'm looking at it right <laughs> now, and it's like it's like a couple of silver tubes. It's like not a normal cell phone. Um, oh, that's kind of weird. Which I don't, sc- I don't like that. I'm I I get why they cut around it. The the script describes it as quote uh, d- uh noticeably futuristic or like disturbingly futuristic or something. Hmm. Which like I didn't need any of that. You know. Yeah. I, I, I agree there. Um. So, yeah, before Nora goes to the dance, she's riding her bike everywhere. Uh, she locks herself in the bathroom because the door sticks. Um, I mostly wanted to reference the scene because just like, again, if this is the universe where 5% or 2% of people lived, uh, then like, how scary must that be? If you, how quickly are you like, well, I guess I'm fucking dead because I live in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody for a million miles. Uh like how much a world like that would isolate you. Uh, I felt that that fear for a moment when Nora, when Nora mm-hmm. was like locked in her bathroom, mm-hmm. uh, but she kicks the door down and like literally ride, like rides it onto the ground, which is funny. Mm-hmm. And she takes a nighttime bike ride to the dance, which is not a dance. It's a wedding <laughs> mm-hmm. inspired by a bunch of different Australian weddings and quote unquote, like hipster bogan culture, which I think is interesting, like aesthetically. Um, they're playing some discotheque. Uh, I wrote, I've never ever seen Kevin this happy before. Uh, he's just like grinning to see her across the way at this place. And, you know, we didn't need, I didn't think we needed this dance scene, uh, until I watched Mm. it and I was like, Mm. Oh, like we're getting an epilogue that we didn't think we need. But again, if the series is about what happens afterwards, then this is what happens is you have a really tender Mm. dance as you reconnect with somebody that you've like spend years searching for because that's what people do people as kevin says here people hold candles nora <laughs> people people like hold out for others they don't just like give up and assume that everyone else is gone forever right um uh so they have this like very tender dance uh the birds are released there's a couple of like rituals to the wedding the birds being released is just kind of like a it, it's also referenced in the final shot of the show um Kevin, I guess, has a scar under his left breast, which again adds a weird bit of credence to the assassin thing yeah, being real. Cutting the thing out of himself, yeah. He does say too that like he has heart issues now. He briefly mentions that in their conversations. Like, uh-huh. uh, you know, I had to get a pacemaker put in. Uh, the creator said that 
they wanted him to have tangible like negative health results from dying so many times like you yeah. couldn't your human heart can't just do that forever right and uh i don't know is this the scene where he reveals everything no he he keeps keeps up his ruse throughout nora keeps asking how did you find me and he keeps more and more weakly repeating the same story that he was in the area he saw her on her bike Ask and the nun. he asked the nun he keeps saying it over and over again and eventually nora's like i can't I can't do this. Uh, and I think it's really deft storytelling here. Um, just like, how do we get these two together? We have this initial conversation where Kevin finds her and he's like, hey, come to the thing. And she has to make the choice to come to the thing. We have them at the wedding to show us like, this is what things could be like. This is them wanting intimacy with each other. This is them having a moment of it. And then butting up against the problems that tore them apart in the first place um, so that we can set them up for the final conversation where we know both of them want this. Mm -hmm. They just need to, like, resolve their shit in order to make this relationship possible. Um, but Nora leaves. She I, I had one more yeah. quick note on the wedding. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but speaking of rituals, like I do, I, I'm kind of a sap for weddings. And so like all this stuff, like with the groom doing the speech, I was like, this is really nice. And then he talks about, uh, he introduces the goat. I don't know if you were going to get to that before Nora leaves. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they have a literal scapegoat. Uh, everybody that comes to the wedding, uh, has to put on these beads and he talks about how like, you know, I've sinned in my life before and sinning is when you do something and you deliberately know you're doing something wrong and then you do it anyways. I'm never going to sin again now that I'm with you. Everybody put out, like, take your sins, which are your beads and put them on this goat. And we're going to let the goat free in the the wild and hope it survives. And it's not our problem anymore, which mm -hmm. is like fucked <laughs> kind of. But also, no. like, you know, it's the Australian like countryside. So, like, you think that goat will be fine. Uh, with these like 800 beads on it uh, uh, right. and Nora doesn't have beads to give it so you know Kevin's like oh you don't like have stuff and she's like I don't like she just didn't think to get any even though they told her like everybody's gonna do this thing with beads Um, but yeah sorry please continue also the last thing I was gonna say about the wedding scene is they played Otis Redding while they danced and I almost cried yes yeah it's uh, it's a targeted strike on the heart here um, yeah, so Nora rides home and she comes across the goat. Um, I think she maybe runs over some of the beads or something. There's some reason that uh, she has to stop. And she yeah, finds her bike the... like gives up, which is scary, by the way, because it's like a bike going full speed and then stopping is like a way people yeah. die. So I was right. like, is Nora going to die right now? What's going All right, on? Right. Um, she comes across the goat. And the goat is stuck uh, on a fence. The beads have, like, caused it to, to get caught up. And so Nora saves the goat and takes it home. And, you know, there's a lot here about what does that moment mean for Nora to kind of ally herself with this animal that's carrying the burden of people's sins? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for her to take that on? Is the goat Nora? Is the goat Kevin? is the goat like something we make for ourselves. Um, but she shows it kindness and like takes care of it. 
um, and saves it from this fate that the wedding party has has destined it to of wandering the wastelands weighed down by people's sin. You know what's so and funny then, about this goat scene, by the way? What's that? Uh, she's like climbing up the hill to get it and it's raining and you're like, oh my God, guys, we get it. It's Sisyphean. Like, yeah. But like, what is the symbolism here? And then like she puts the, the beads on herself and you're like, okay, I get it. She's like taking on other people's sins. Mm-hmm. You guys really crafted this. This scene is based on a real thing that happened. Uh, what do you mean? Which is in 2013, a bunch of mountain hikers uh, in New Zealand found a sheep whose head was stuck in a fence and oh. climbed up this fucking gigantic mountain and rescued it. Uh, wow. You can look up Fail Rescue Sheep NZ on YouTube, guys, if you want to find this video. It's really scary and then hilarious as they do, spoiler, they do get the sheep out. Uh, mm. And you just watch it like roll down the hill. But it's mm. like, yeah, this is like based on a real thing. It seems like they, they crafted this to be like too cute, too poetic, but it was a thing that happened. Sometimes life is poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I kind of felt like mixed about like the, it, like, why is she taking on people's sins? It's like, what's that about? Um, how did you feel about all that? Um, I think, you know, the, importantly, the scene that happens prior to it that I skipped over is Nora goes to talk to the nun because her doves haven't returned. She's mad at the nun. What the hell? And someone is climbing out of the nun's window uh so clearly this nun is like secretly having sex and not telling anybody and nora's like you were having sex with that guy and the nun's like who me (laughs) having sex come on um i'm a nun yeah and the doves had all been released at the wedding nora's like you know i i don't accept this thing that they told themselves of the doves are flying to the four corners of the world um and the nun's like well you know, it's just a nicer story. So, like, let's choose to believe that. And this episode is really exactly. about Nora wrestling with that question of, like, the truth versus the stories we tell. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Nora saving the goat is this moment of, like, defiance against... Uh, the kind of like fakey stories that we tell ourselves or like the the pomp or the kind of ceremony that can sometimes carry meaning for us uh, because it's one thing to say like my sins are being carried away on a goat and it's another thing to say like this poor goat needs help and like mm-hmm. that's the real reality like we can pretend like these beads represent something but this goat is in trouble and like I'm going to be the person who stares this straight in the face and takes care of it. Uh, And, you know, I think that that is an attitude that's gotten Nora in trouble before and has been the source of her sins or problems or mistakes, the kind of like in a very direct way, confronting dishonesty and yelling at it, essentially. Um, And so... It's another moment of her doing that, uh, but it's kind of interesting to see that happen in the context of where she ends up in the episode, where you question whether or not she's telling the truth, uh, or is she telling a story at the end there? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it necessarily. I do think it's a it's a beautiful scene, and I think it's like 
importantly, a moment where Nora chooses to express compassion um, at risk of herself, which just speaks to like her character and what she values, which I think is important. Well, and it's the show's final message kind of like condensed into a scene, right? The, the creator said that her conversation with the nun is actually the key to understanding the ending, which, again, we'll talk mm. about. But she, the nun says, like, it's a better story. It's, it's easier to, to process things this way. And her rescuing the goat is is both accepting there are real people and animals in front of me that need help. And this means a lot to people. You can have both of those. You don't have to reject mm. that, like, people let the beads, like, put the beads on this goat and then hoped it would survive. You don't have to tell them that that's BS or that that's fake. It doesn't, like, make the world better. It helps people cope with the fact that life feels like it has no meaning. And so we yeah. make meaning, as we've been saying time and time again on the show. And to I, kind of, like, do both of those at once is, like, perfect. Yeah, because I guess Nora could have thrown the beads on the ground, right? Like, she didn't need to take them, but she puts them on. So she... I, I like that because she is choosing to position herself in the the sort of ceremony here or the story here and see the story continue alongside the goat's life continuing to. Did, did you catch where she left the beads? Where was that? She left the beads on a paper towel rack in her kitchen, which was the last thing that she touched when Stop her family it. disappeared. Stop it, Nora. Further offering credence that she believes in symbols now because mm -hmm. that what more of a symbol is there than that, right? Wow. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. Um, so, yeah, she puts the beads back. Uh, she continues to dig through the letters that she finds from the birds. She sees a couple of funny ones from various wedding guests, like my husband has erectile dysfunction. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but she finds one, crucially, that says, like, I never forgot about you. Or uh, or I'll always look be looking for you, which mm -hmm. again makes her go like, "Fuck, is it?" Or it's I know you're out there. I just found it. Uh, again makes her go like, "Ah, oh, beans, did he know what's going on? Is he real?" And then she looks up. Here's Kevin. Let's walk and talk and get to our final scene in the house and have a cup of tea. Um, but mm -hmm. first he explains the truth, which is that. Just in case you didn't get it at this point, we are in the future of the time of the dimension that we've always been in the show. We're just like 20, 30 years in the future. This is our world. Uh, Nora is going to explain where she went, but Kevin uh, never stopped looking for her. And so every year he would take his two weeks of vacation and go to Australia and go into the middle of like the, the countryside and mm -hmm. ask around and ask in every city and every town. And do you know Nora Duras? And he brought a photo with her with him. It's a little. It seems a little bit ridiculous, but doesn't so much of love seem ridiculous sometimes when you say it on paper? Mm -hmm. And also, his act here is a moment of like, you're all I have, right? Like, who else am I going to look for? My, I'm older. My kids are often married. I have a granddaughter. My father is 91 years old, just like uh, Fraser the Lion, by the way. Kevin Senior is also 91. I, I noticed that too. <laughs> uh, I like to think that they are. He's secretly a lion, like anamorph or something. Uh -huh. uh, and he just kept looking because he's like, "Yeah, what else do you do when the world is like this? What do you do except cling to the things you have, even if they're a million million miles away?" So every year, ceaselessly, Kevin looks for Nora, and he's uh -huh. so annoyed. He's like, "I just, I'm sick of doing this. I don't want to do this anymore." And finally, I felt like I had a miracle happen when I showed my picture, your picture to the nun, 
and she said she knew you. I refuse to believe you were gone, he says. Mm. Imagine that. Years. Years of his life that he was like, this isn't real. And maybe it was. Like, maybe he gets to the end of his life and he goes, oh, man, I guess Nora did leave. Mm. Uh, but no, he, he refused to leave, which is really, really potent. And her response is, I was going to make a cup of tea. Did you want some? <laughs> and he's like, uh. Sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Sweat dripping down his head as he's like fucking standing there. Yeah. And uh, this is it, folks. This is the big everything explained and yet nothing explained at the same time, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Nora communicates to Kevin a story, a tale, a, a situation that happened. Uh-huh. Um. She asks him about like when he, when he moved back to Mapleton and all of that, and he's like, "Yeah, Michael runs the church. John is in with Lori, et cetera, et cetera." Tom and got she, a divorce, but he's doing okay. Tom got yeah. a divorce, but he's going to be fine. Uh, and then she, he's like, "What about you?" And she goes, "Well, I went through the machine, and what is the line? Uh, we were so sad that we lost them, but they lost all of us." Mm-hmm. Just the moment that it clicks. They don't reference percentages here, but. Per her story, that's a world where 98% of the world disappeared all at once, which this is the thing, guys. When I said, like, there's a spoiler about the show that kept me up one night, think about the implications of that. She even talks about, like, they couldn't fly planes anymore because there aren't enough pilots left. So they just don't have planes. Right. Uh, So I went to Australia by boat. Well, she was in Australia. Or was in Australia. I came back to Mapleton by boat. And then she went back to Australia again to find the guy who designed the machine. Mm-hmm. She went. So she to went come to back to this world. She went to Maple. This is the sad thing, right? She goes to Mapleton, and she's like, "There's so few people there, and it's so barren." But there were people there, and I found the thing I came here to find, which is my husband and my kids. And yeah. there was another woman, and they were doing fine. And that was the moment she realized that she didn't belong here anymore. Yeah. Uh, this is the line I wrote down when she sees her family and decides like I'm going back. She says they were happy. And I understood that here in this place, they were the lucky ones in a world full of orphans. They still had each other. And I was a ghost. I was a ghost who had no place there. Right. There it is. And wild. What a beautiful like I I was floored by this thought experiment. Yeah. And we can talk about the extent to which we the veracity think it's of it. true or not. Mm-hmm. But um to have a show that's entirely about like this event that that disrupts society, can you believe it? Two percent of all people totally disappeared, and that throws everything up into the air. And the whole time you're wondering, well, like, where do they go? Where do they go? Where do they go? And then for that question to be answered with the question of, well, where did you go? Actually, because did you think about what happened to that two percent of people? who are now the only 2% of people where they are. And to them, it looks like you disappeared and you're here in a world with 98% of people 
and you have all of this and all of these things that you can invest into and like these connections that you can nurture and over there it's just two percent of people and they've figured out how to be okay right Mm -hmm. and there's something about that that's like oh fuck you're right (laughs) like uh great great response i guess i'm not gonna know where they went and the thing I need to do is look around me and like figure out where I am right now yeah. uh, and what that means to me. Love and, the 98% that stayed. Yeah. And what just like what a startling mirror moment of like, well, what are why are you asking? Like, look around yourself. Um, You're that, actually really lucky. Right. You're actually, you're you're so fortunate that two percent of people <laughs> left. Like, isn't that odd? Like, we can't. We literally can. This is like what grief is. We can't process yeah. as humans what ninety eight percent of us going away looks like. We can process two percent. They right. never got that, and yet they still found family, community, love, culture, and they did all of it with two percent of the world, which right. like. My brain, this is why I said it kept me up all night. Like, my brain cannot wrap myself around that. That means Sammy woke up in that parking lot with no mother. That means that, you know, who else do we know that departed? That means that Anthony Bourdain and Gary Busey are out there hanging out. That means most (laughs) of the cast of Perfect Strangers is out there uh, doing whatever the fuck they're doing, starting a new show and feeling bad that they lost Mark. Uh, Mm. I mean, those two kids that jumped off or whatever that, that Tom saw, the woman that Kevin slept with, uh, right. all these people are now living their own lives. Like Sammy's an adult now who lived, mm-hmm. lived his whole life without a mother. That's so sad. Right. But they managed it. And this is our first hint at like what the, the sort of prestige that the scene is doing um, is editing. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you've been paying attention, the leftovers, whenever somebody talks about what happened, they show it. It's a flashback. Uh, mm-hmm. in the entirety, if you watch it back, guys, the entirety of the scene, Nora's describing what happened, we never see anything I just told you. We never see the other world or anybody that was there. We only focus on Nora and Kevin's faces in tight zooms. Right. Uh, back and forth. There's zero flashing back here, which some people have argued is the key. That mm. here's one inter- here's the here's the first interpretation of this is Nora's lying. Why do we think she would be lying if she's lying? Before we talk about what we personally believe, why would Nora lie about this? So uh, I will just say right now, I watched this great YouTube video from Macabre Storytelling called The Leftovers. Yes, Nora lied. And I'm just going to link that to you. Um, So that I want to make sure I credit that because I may be borrowing some thoughts from it. Um, Mm -hmm. Essentially, that video lays out that a core theme of this episode is people lying about stuff. It mm-hmm. starts from the first scene where Nora, her motivations are not clear in her testimonial. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nun lies. The, you know, there's just a lot of like a uh, Matt Kevin lies. Kevin lies the whole time. Matt, when Nora's like, what are you going to say? How, what are you going to tell people about me? And Matt says, whatever you want me to. So that that's just in the air, this sort of like storytelling versus telling the truth. Um, and ultimately, the video also argues that it's just like the more interesting 
thing for Nora to lie here. Um, to me, I I think it's so fascinating the thought experiment of like this world where it's two percent of the people and the ninety eight percent left, mm-hmm. and I think what I want that to be true from like a cool sci-fi idea perspective. But where I kind of land with it is like Nora has finally figured out what fate means to her. Right. Like this is an incredibly Nora conception of the divine. There's not a heaven that answers for this. There's not an apocalypse. There's not a rapture. There's just this reframing this mirror of well take a look at where you are and can you think about a world that is like grounded in the logic and the rationality of the real world where your family is okay where your kids are okay Mm -hmm. and where you don't need to be um that's all she ever wanted that's the thing that she needed right is she needed a sense of closure uh, on this. And she has figured out like, this is the way that this can work for me. Um, So that, that's how I interpret it. That Nora is not telling the truth. Um, I'm less sure about like, there's, in the same video and in some other places I saw, people theorize that Nora, when she's in the machine, then we hear the beginning of a word that she's saying the word stop. Stop. Yeah, I believe it. Um, and I'm less sure about that. I kind of feel like Nora went through with it and like the whole fossil of a person thing was like a fake prop mm-hmm. and they just like she was unconscious and they just left her in the parking lot and drove away or something. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my theory. I don't think she told them to stop. I think she just got duped by this scam and then spent all of this time being pissed about it. And then here seeing Kevin again, she's like, well, shit, I want to be with this guy. I'm still not over this. How do I make peace with this thing that has been hanging over me for so long? And you can even be cynical and say she's doing it to make him stay. Like, yeah, I want I want him to be around, and so I tell him this, and he'll find it really profound, and then we'll be good. Like, mm-hmm. so you're saying you're you're you want to believe that she went through, right? Um, only I only want to believe it in the sense that it's like a cool idea, but I think mm-hmm. I pretty much. <sighs> I don't know. I think I pretty much believe that she's lying, Mm -hmm. that she got fooled by the experiment thing and that she's making this up, but that it's like a truthful expression of what she has faith in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, A listener of the podcast recently said that even though I've talked about how I'm religious, uh, it it has come up surprisingly infrequently in the chats over us, despite this often being a show about belief and faith and spirituality, right? You know, I, I've mentioned this before. Um, this was the moment where I've never felt more Christian than I did watching this, uh, or more religious, actually, just to be broad. Um, wow. I believe her wholeheartedly. 
Every part of me believes her. The part that gets me the most about this, this is the part that made me start crying was she says, I didn't want to tell you, Kevin, because you weren't going to believe me. And he says through tears, I believe you. You do? Why wouldn't I believe you? You're here. That's all that matters. And at the end of the day, that's the answer that The Leftovers is trying to get to is how do you accept loss? Well, you're going to refuse to accept that they're gone until you can meet them again, until you can like touch them and talk to them and see them and look at them. And then you'll accept it. And at the end of the day, whatever helps you cope if you want to believe in a higher power that that took them somewhere else that they are better off that's why the concept of heaven exists mm -hmm. is it helps us answer the unanswerable and yeah. they did such a good job with giving us an unanswerable question here right because at the end of the day it's not what happened to the departed it's what happens when you die and like i choose right. to believe that they went to a different place uh some people are hitting this with like honestly very sound logic and facts and like that are backed up by the editing and production of the show that no they didn't go anywhere and she's lying and she never went anywhere that's fine well that's and great sorry go ahead it's fine and it's great i just i choose not to believe i choose to believe her hmm well and i think it's a different i think what's to me compelling is there's a difference between uh saying they went somewhere and nora went where they went right yeah yeah like you could believe that nora didn't go there but that they went somewhere mm -hmm. um and because to me like believing that nora went through if we're making a sort of religion metaphor is saying that like nora didn't become a believer until she took a trip to heaven and she's like, okay, checks out. Looks like heaven. And then she goes back to earth. Um, as opposed to like putting Nora in a position where she has to make a leap of faith. Like she right. doesn't get to see it for herself. And right. Nora is a character who this whole show has only ever believed the cold, hard truth of what's right in front of her. Mm -hmm. And now to like have peace and the life that she wants she needs to find a way to accept something that she like can't tangibly see or touch or prove yeah. um and i think that to me that's a compelling thing because for me as somebody who's like not a person of faith i see myself in nora having to do that and how difficult that is for her and it makes me wonder like what would that look like in, in my life or is there a place for that in, in my life yeah. um i think there is yeah. And yeah, that's a really good point that like there exists a version where she says, stop, they stop. And then she tells everybody that that's what happened. And people are going to believe her because why isn't Kevin going to believe her? Like he says, why wouldn't I believe you? Yeah. Because he went all this way. And, and what mattered was the real miracle that he found her. And right. we're here. And the at this, uh, you know, also should just mention like the the conclusion of what she says in her story is i saw my family i said wow i don't belong here she found the equivalent of dr eden and dr becker in the other world dr i don't remember his name 
and he built her a new machine, a reverse machine, and came back. Mm-hmm. Um, the ending is that they hold hands as we pan out to the the little shack that she has, and we pan out and pan out, and the birds, the doves come back, which we had suspected that maybe the doves had like something to do. Like, are is like, are they crossing the universes? Are they coming back? Like when when I first saw her in the in the uh, you know the first time we saw this future. I mm. thought that she was somehow delivering birds between the two worlds. That was like mm. what I chose to believe. And so mm. seeing this, it was That's like, cool. oh, but it's it's all here now. Like what really matters is not how do you feel? What do you think happened in the ending of The Leftovers? But like what did happen in The Leftovers is Kevin and Nora found each other and they, they and love prevailed. Yeah. So like I'll debate this all day with people. It's just it's 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 ju- they just made religion right like they gave me an argument that I can have forever that some people won't pro- won't won't agree with, but what really meaningfully happened is like yeah you can find each other after the end of the world and there's something really potent about that and to the question of you know how do you process grief well it's the one of the hardest things for the human mind to process because we're not built for it but you do it anyways by making up stories for yourself. And believing them. That's all yeah. we got. So that's how I felt about it. I thought it was awesome. I'm so glad that yeah. they ended like this. I would not have liked if my initial interpretation was right, which is, wow, Nora went to another world and now she lives there. Or she lives there. Because mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, she lived there for so long and they go like, what about, do you know Kevin? And she goes, no, I don't know him because he's in the other world. It wasn't mm-hmm. that. If it was that, I would have been so bummed. But like this version, right. pitch perfect. It's exactly yeah. how the leftovers needed to end. Yeah. I, I think just a note on the doves thing. What I love so much about that being the final shot is at the wedding, there's this this beautiful moment of like, we're going to tie the messages to the doves. They're going to fly all over the place and deliver our messages of love. And, you know, to me, that represents how for so much of the show, characters just want to like reach out to something or someone that isn't here or how John wants to make sure that Evie hears a message. Like there's all of this, like, let me send out this thing. And what Nora says to the nun is like, look, these doves were trained to do one thing. They were trained to come home. Like that's, that's the marvelous noteworthy thing about the doves. Not that they fly away, but that they can come back. And that that's where we end. It's not about like, did your message make it to someplace far away? It's did you make it back to the place where you need to be or where you should be? And like, isn't that the most beautiful thing about this ending is not like where we went, but Kevin saying like, you're here. That's the thing is you're right here. So I, I love that. I thought it was really wonderful so sweet that's why i said when i cried <laughs> at the end of this i was like this is great thank you yeah. thank you thank you the creators of leftovers and tom parade and everybody for making a show that truly touched my heart multiple times and ended so perfectly because you know we've been doing this podcast for so many years and like we're like numb to endings that are disappointing at this point <laughs> like mm-hmm. shows get made and network notes happen i read that hbo gave them the rare boon of giving no network notes about the finale. Wow. Like, you guys you guys get to produce whatever the fuck finale you want. You did enough for us. The show is on its own path. You can finish this however you want. 
Uh, So they had no notes. And like, it's great. I want more people to watch this show. I kind of want to talk more broadly about, um, you know, The Leftovers as a series and like whether or not we recommend it to folks. Um, Because we have no more episodes to talk about. They're not going to make another season. I hope they fucking don't. There's no way (laughs) to. It's like closing a book, right? Um, I think in general, when people say like, like I talk about my fixation on this show and why I love it, uh, it's a great example of TV growing over time and getting better over time with with like practice from the actors, from the writers and the directors, all of that improving. Uh, and that first season, while like rough in hindsight, because it stands in comparison to what we're looking at, wasn't as bad as I remembered. Uh, or wasn't as difficult. It just like it's people learning, you know. It's people learning how to make mm-hmm. this incredibly tough show with this really hard to describe premise. Uh, and you get to watch them figure that out, and then refine it in season two, and hone it to a like a pinpoint in season three. Uh, yeah. And that's I say it all the time. But, like that's what I love about TV is you get to like see something evolve over time instead of just seeing a finished film on the screen. Um. So it's evolutionary, just like life a lot of times is. You know, mm-hmm. we look back on where we were three, four, or five, six, seven, eight years ago, and we say, I don't know, what was my life then? Like, what was, what were my priorities? Uh, and I think that, yeah, like looking back, I do think it's going to be, it's a bit of a slog for people on their very first watch, um, but it's really worth it. Even though we famously don't like it when people say, like, you got to get through season one. Like, you mm-hmm. will find things to like in season one. You will find moments of, warmth and and like interesting plot details like the fucking toaster scenes in season one guys the toaster scenes amazing it's still amazing <laughs> right uh and then the show will evolve into one of your favorites because it just it does that and i love that yeah. about it how do you feel about the leftovers as a whole now that we've we're looking back on it yeah i think it's a show that as uh i maybe mentioned a few episodes ago is able to use the unexplainable to tap into like surprisingly I don't want to say mundane but like surprisingly human human common feelings mm-hmm. struggles universal right? yeah universal is a good word there yeah um like we're not answering fantastical questions we're answering universal questions and using this very simple conceit of 2% of people disappeared. And now we can tell stories about people who are struggling to reconcile that unexplainable thing. Mm -hmm. And it helps us to retrieve in some ways, uh, you know, that moment that the cave woman experiences when everybody that she knows is trapped behind a bunch of rocks from a landslide from an earthquake. Uh, We can retrieve what it must have been like to be a human being throughout so much of human history where things happen and we don't know why the seasons change or why people die and they're coughing and what's happening to them or, you know, all sorts of like unanswerable questions that have been the seeds of myths and religions and stories and philosophy for the entirety of our history. I think The Leftovers does a truly marvelous thing by allowing us to access that in a way that it's hard to, I think now. Um, And I think in, 
science fiction and, you know, when people kind of want to try to compose the answers to like how are alternate dimensions created or whatever. Um, so I really, really love the leftovers for that reason. And I think it sits with shows like, um, th that we've covered like the prisoner as like, you know, you gotta watch this cause it's doing something that I've never seen another TV show do. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know where it ranks for me personally in terms of like favorite shows or shows that have impacted me or whatever, but there are definitely scenes and, and episodes that are going to stick with me for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm really glad we watched it. It's an incredible show that's doing something that other shows just don't, don't do. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you say that because like when I recommended it, there was a bit of self indulgence of like you know I just heard a podcast about this. I really want to get to the ending, uh, you know, come on this journey with me, and I want to hear what you think. Um, and I think we came to it from a good perspective of like we approach faith and spirituality differently. Uh, we hit it at a right time with COVID, and that we're experiencing a lot, experiencing a lot of grief both in our family lives and in the world. Uh, and like that speaks too to the universality of the leftovers. Like I was reading more reviews of the finale as it aired and a lot of people said like this is awesome but they said like it's so perfect for our current moment now in 2017 and i was like huh <laughs> i hmm. feel that way about the current era because <laughs> they're saying yeah. like we feel powerless and we feel like the world is going to end because like of the the whole like president situation and whatnot uh and yet yeah we we felt that too with like the the isolation and the lack of people and the way that people have come together. And the truth is the leftovers is just a universal, sh a universal show and warts and all lots of problems. I'm not here to tell you it doesn't have a lot of problems, but uh, I think too, that you have to have lost to get to the leftovers. A show minute runner doesn't make something like this on their first try. It's like one in a billion chance. Uh, and I think that Lindelof and co like really understood what people didn't like and said, all right, easy. Don't answer it. And that's all they had to do, and they did it. So, to me, it's a success. Yeah. Um, speaking of not answering it, just briefly, I want to talk about like how the different showrunners and actors uh, interpret the ending. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty well known that uh, Lindelof is a very optimistic guy. He likes happy endings. It's we'll talk about Lost someday, uh, <laughs> but like <laughs> he likes happy endings. So, but he also likes ambiguity. He comes from the school of J.J. Abrams of, you know, it's more interesting when you don't explain the mystery box that kind of botched so much of dramatic television in the last 10 years. Uh, he hasn't said. He said that him and the writers for sure have an answer and they're never telling anybody. So in terms of like Damon Lindelof and the writers of the whole writer's mm -hmm. room for The Leftovers. They had an intention in mind. Yeah. They had an answer in mind and did not and they will never say it. Uh, I believe, I don't remember what Carrie Coon specifically thinks happened, but, uh, there was like some notes somewhere about like how she chose to perform this finale. Um, but the one that was most interesting to me was, was actually Justin Theroux because, uh, did you hear about this? He had the interview where somebody asked him, like, what do you think happened? Uh, I saw you linked it in our outline. I skimmed it. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes as well. But basically, uh, there was an interview like towards, like right after the finale, where someone was like, uh, what did you think happened? And he said, guys, it's in the editing. 
uh, the fact that they didn't show flashbacks means that she's lying. And isn't mm-hmm. that beautiful? And it's a defense mechanism. And then like a couple years later, he apologized. He said, I never wanted to take people's interpretation away. I didn't, I'm not here to answer that for you guys. I'm sorry that I answered that and mm. felt like, and like, like formally apologized for, for s- describing his interpretation of the ending. Mm. Uh, Interesting. Framing it as like, guys, it's obviously this because it's, it's not obviously that at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. There's a version of it. That's like, yes, this is true. You didn't cut. That's how like TV editing works. Uh, but maybe they just did that on purpose. Maybe that's part of the mystique of the finale. So I thought his, his version and in the apology was like super interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's what I had about the leftovers. Um, I don't think I have any other things. Did you have any stray notes about the finale? Yeah, I had a few, a few, uh, things here. I think, uh, let's see here. Just on what you were saying from Justin through, it's interesting to me that he's interpreting Nora as trying to like scare Kevin away um, to get Kevin to do what she did. Right. And run away when Kevin's telling her things that are scary to her, but he's hearing voices or whatever. Um, So that's not an interpretation I had that she's trying to like push him away. Uh, But my interpretation was like, this is the story where she's demonstrating like, I'm over this and, or, you know, I can move on and be with you. Um, but it's, uh, that's an interesting thing because it calls back to the ways that Nora kind of ran from Kevin and is worried that he'll do the same maybe in this moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the line. Kevin is still trying to pretend like he doesn't remember stuff. Nora's like, well, remember we met at divorce court and I invited you to Miami. <laughs> and he says, that doesn't sound like me. If you asked me to go to Miami, I definitely would have gone. I love Miami. I love Miami. Who doesn't? <laughs> Such a funny line. Uh, there's this little moment where when the groom is giving the speech about sin, he kind of turns to the nun and he's like, hey, you know about sin, right? And she's <laughs> like, tee hee 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 That was kind of funny. Um... Do, 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 do. that's that's the big stuff the uh, other thing the the moment that really since i didn't know the spoiler of the two percent 98 percent thing as Nora's telling the story uh of her being in the other world at first i thought she had just come across people who had unusually like terrible departure experiences Um, and then I realize what's going on because she talks about how she comes across a couple and one of them lost all these family members and the other guy was in a supermarket and then he's the only person left in the supermarket. Wild. And and just uh, once I figured out as she was explaining it, what that meant, I was like, oh my God, my head is exploding right now. Wow. Um, but yeah. You see also, how that there's... could keep me up for a night, though. You, you, oh, like, you yeah. get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there's a little line with the goat where Nora's like, I thought they were going to kill that goat. And Kevin's like, they said they were going to sacrifice it. And Nora's like, have you ever seen someone sacrifice a goat? And Kevin's like, no, that, no. Would, that would be weird. <laughs> it's just like lampooning its own, its own yeah. season. <laughs> yeah. And then the last thing is Nora asks Kevin if people call the town miracle anymore. And he's like, not so much. No, I uh, love is, that. Yeah, I like that a lot. So what's a miracle about it? Whatever. We, we're past it. Right. 
whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, the only line I had that I didn't mention was, you know, I mentioned people hold candles, Nora, which I really loved when Kevin's dancing with her. Yeah. And then he also says, I look forward to a lifetime of fucking up with you. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's what the guy in the fucking That's the, what the the groom, groom says. says. I look forward to a lifetime of fucking up with you, which is like the reason I'm getting that mixed up is I want Kevin and Nora to feel like that. I hope they feel mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Is, is the acknowledgement that like, yeah, we're in like a cute cabin in Australia, but like. There's going to be something quotidian that happens right after that camera cuts, right? They're going to be like, okay, where are you sleeping tonight? Do you need to help? want me to go back to Napleton with you? Where do you want to live? Do you want to live with me here? Um, I wanted more of that, you know? One of the other things we also jumped over was uh, when we see Nora just living her life, she makes a fried egg sandwich, uh, which is a delicious treat. I actually tried making one uh, after watching this episode, and uh, it went really badly because I used the wrong cheese. I wanted some cheese on my egg. But uh, mm-hmm. there was apparently like way more scenes of that. Like that was going to be her ritual it was like I make a Friday, a Friday sandwich every day because, hey, sometimes you make rituals for yourself to help cope with the chaos of the world. Uh, so they like hinted at that, but it's not in the final cut of the episode. And then also, did you know another bit of trivia was one of the ways this was going to happen initially was uh, a grown up Lily was going to come to see Nora whoa and they were like uh i think this is way more interesting actually if we put kevin on this like lifelong quest to find her but i that i think that would have been an interesting way to loop back to season one and like make lily matter a little bit more to the story um but yeah yeah and to kind of tie the the loose end of that question of like the Holy Wayne's kid is going to be the savior or something like there's kind of a thematic thing that they could have done with that. I don't know. But there, there's a, fu- there's a funny moment in the, um in the too long didn't watch where they watch the, because po- the premise of that podcast is they watch the pilot in the final episode and they watch the pilot and Rob Hubel's like, Oh, this Holy Wayne guys. And then like Alan asks him before they watch the finale, like, what do you think is going to be like a driving <laughs> thing in the show? He was like, oh, this Holy Wayne guy is going to be pretty big. And, like, I bet you, like, Kevin's going to have to, like, unite his family together to defeat Holy Wayne. And <laughs> <laughs> so good. So, you got to listen like to that podcast. Stand or something. Yeah. You should, I highly recommend now that people are done with the show to listen to that because uh, you won't get spoiled like I did. Um, but then at the end, he's like, whatever happened to Holy Wayne? And Alan's like, oh, that was that's like the second episode. They take care of that. He's like, <laughs> and then he's in a bathroom for some reason. Oh, and it gives Kevin a power. It's oh a whole God, thing. It's so funny hearing somebody who's never experienced this show. Like they have like yeah. a trivia section. He's like, which one of these things happens? Like a lion sex cult, a naked guy on a submarine who's trying to stop a sea serpent. <laughs> and it's all of the above. And Rob people's like, what is this show? Why did I not watch it? <laughs> so that's, funny. that's my, my informal uh, recommendation of, of that episode of too long. Didn't watch. Nice. Anyways, um, that does it for the leftovers, folks. I know we're going long, so let's let's wrap here. Uh, yeah, we are excited to announce that uh, chats is obviously going to continue. We have no plans of stopping just yet, mm-hmm. and I'm ready to tell you guys all what season 15 is going to be. Did you guess it? We've never hinted at it, although we're returning in a sense to a showrunner that we've dealt with before. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, uh, if you've been on our Patreon, you remember that we commentaried The Matrix a long time ago and loved that, the Wachowskis rule. If you've listened to Chats on 5, you know that we have a love-hate relationship with J. Michael Straczynski. Love-hate? 
Love, love. Oh, love, love. Love, love. There's no hate. We adore JMS. All right. Well, JMS being our podcast, actually, we love you. Please make the Babylon 5 reboot happen. I know it's going through issues. That's right, folks. Hit him with the music. Chats Television Podcast Season 15 is Chats 8. We're watching... <laughs> so We keep doing this. We're watching Can I Sense8. We were originally going to do Sense8 as Season 8 uh, to make the numbers make sense, but this is better. That it's well, like... Then we do Chats on 5 as Season 6. We're good at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then The Prisoner, which is about number 6, was Season 7. <laughs> we keep whiffing it. Oh, Chats 8. We're going to we watch... just can't get it right. Sense8... It's uh, two seasons and a special. It's all on Netflix. It's a Netflix original series from the Wachowskis and J. Michael Straczynski. Um, And it's about a bunch of people who share a connection and are able to tap into each other's lives and souls in some Mm -hmm. uh, very hippy-dippy ways, but also in some sick action movie ways. So uh, Magellan's never seen it. I've seen the first season of it and not the second season. Lovely. Uh, That's great. I love it. There's not much to spoil in this show so you sh- i mean don't like go googling things but uh from what i watched it's just kind of fun and interesting and thought-provoking so mm. you know there's going to be less of like uh, there's no like key question that we're going to be answering is more what i'm getting at um yeah. but we're not watching it next week folks or we're not discussing it next week um, yeah because, so yeah i i can take this part so yeah. In terms of, uh, we made some shifts to how we're scheduling episodes uh, for the sake of uh, Alan's traveling soon. I traveled a little bit ago. We're trying to make sure that we can properly prep for episodes and deliver solid content. So next Sunday, you're going to get the Should You Watch episode uh, that we wanted to uh, watch stuff for during this month, the month of September. Um, and we're going to be talking about House of the Dragon and Rings of Power up to the point that they have aired this week. Um, so we'll talk about those next Sunday, October 2nd. Then the following Sunday, October 9th, you'll be getting Trek Chats 3. So we're going to talk about the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. The Sunday after that, October 16th, we're going to re-air our pilot chats that we did years ago for Sense8 so that you can hear our initial impressions of the pilot when we first watched it together on our Patreon. It was Pilot Chats 8, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. So we got the numbers right there. We got it right Uh, there. Yeah, but that was a few years ago, so it's going to be kind of a throwback vibe, I think. And then we will officially start our coverage of Sense8 on uh, four weeks from this release, October 23rd. Uh, just so you know, so that that's how we're gonna do do that. Mm. Yeah, so a little time to get adjusted to the start of a new season to hear us talk about some hot topics in TV and some old hot topics in TV. Uh, time for you to go to hot topic if you want to. Um, yeah, but that's uh, the the calendar for October. 
Yes. So a little break from the chats like TV club, but I know some people like it when they have time to catch up and download the show and maybe watch ahead. So you'll have plenty of time to do that as we talk about, you know, the first half of the new fantasy dramas people are into as well as uh, Star Trek. So um, we have a lot of content coming. It's not going to really be a break for you guys. It's just more of a catch up and give ourselves more of a buffer that we lost uh, for us. Mm-hmm. So with that, Majel, um, I want to ask you what I always ask you, which is where can people find you on other podcasts? You can find me on another podcast. It's a video game club podcast that comes out uh, monthly or semi-monthly called Super Smash Echoes, where myself and my friend Justin play through games that are related to the Super Smash Brothers franchise in some way. We recently recorded an episode with a very special guest talking about F-Zero GX. Uh, you should hear it soon if it's not out already it was a very fun discussion uh and alan can attest to the quality of that discussion i who knows how alan can attest to it but i heard heard it was good they heard it was good so there you go super smash echoes alan what about you we're so annoying <laughs> um, I'm on the Hunter's Quorum, which is a uh, Monster Hunter video game podcast. We will talk about video games in our spare time. That's so cute, uh, but not with each other, except when you're on the Quorum talking about Pokemon. Basically, my friend Six and I, and sometimes our friend Manofsky, uh, we talk about all the monsters from Monster Hunter and whether or not they're uh, filler or sick as hell. And we did the same thing with Pokemon, and we're going to do that again in November when Pokemon Scarlet and Violet come out. So. Uh, we're working also through the Temtem uh, list of, of creatures right now, uh, and it's a ride and a half. So check out the Hunter's Quorum. Uh, that's what it's on your podcast catcher as, uh, wherever you listen to those. And uh, if you want to hear more of me in my more professional context, I am the VP of content at the American Marketing Association in Boston, which means that I am the primary host of the Talking Marketing Podcast which is a show where I and sometimes other hosts uh, interview marketing professionals about their craft, what they do, why they do it, and what makes them tick. And it's pretty fun, even if you're not at all interested in the world of marketing, the fun and fresh world. Um, so that can also be found on like Spotify and everything. That's what we have, folks. Magellan, I gotta ask you, can you do the plug zone for chats, please? I sure can, yeah. If you want to get in touch with the show, you have a few options. Let me tell you what they are. You can email us at chatspot at gmail.com with questions, comments, concerns, feedback. Now is a great time to tell us if you want to guest on an episode of Chats 8. We would love to have you. We have an open door here at Chats. All you got to do is let us know. Give us an episode of Sense8 that you want to talk about, and we will put you on our calendar. So please email us if that is of interest to you. You can also follow us on Twitter at ChatsPod, where we will be posting about uh, episodes, announcements, getting people hyped for the new season. You can check us out there. You can join fellow listeners over at reddit.com slash r slash ChatsPod, where we're watching old uh, shows, listening to old seasons of Chats. And you can join our Discord, which is a benefit for all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash ChatsPod. Dollar and up gets you on the Discord. $3 and up gets you twice monthly bonus content. $5 and up gets you thanked right here at the end of every single main feed episode. So our $5 patrons are Arthur, Jen, Justin, Kat, Lee, my mom, Marcus, Michael, Nick and Pat of the Brothers in Infinite War, Six, and Stefan. Thank you folks for being supporters of the show. 
We also have a website, chatspod.com. You can rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts. That would be super helpful. You can check out at Camillustrator, uh, the designer of our podcast art. And you can just treat people well and appreciate the people around you. You know, take these lessons to heart from the leftovers uh, and and live them in your life. You can also listen to our recommendations, our chatsums, our things to snack on between now and next time. Alan, give a chatsum for the folks. I have two chatsums for the folks. Okay. Uh, one of them is actually a rechat some, but it's it's been very long since I chat summed it, and it's relevant to the leftovers. Um, I wanted to re-recommend The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, uh, which is a uh, collection of stories and poetry. Uh, he's a, a Middle Eastern poet, or was many years ago, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Prophet that my dad used to always recommend to me, and I was always like, it's so boring, and I read it. And uh, the reason I recommend it now, again, is because A... Uh, it came up in my time hop because I screenshotted a passage from it, and it's like a really beautiful passage about like comparing yourself to your best and worst days or whatever, uh, or whatever. It's great, hmm. uh, and also there are significant parts of it about grief and like moving on past other people and finding community and all that good stuff. So, you know, in terms of like things to read after you've watched the leftovers, maybe read the leftovers. Not that neither of us have actually read it. Maybe read the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. It's pretty dope. I like it a lot. Hmm. Um, nice. My uh, my like non-relevant chatsum uh-huh. uh, is a, a new YouTube channel that just kind of popped up out of nowhere that I found. It's Masahiro Sakurai on creating games. Um, if you listen to Super Smash Echoes, then you know that Magellan likes to talk about game design on there with Justin. And uh, Sakurai was the primary developer on the Super Smash Brothers games, and he just started putting out these these videos like every day, every other day on this channel. They're like fairly well produced. Uh, I started like three weeks ago and they're just like about different hyper specific aspects of game design, like frame rate and risk mm. and reward and lag and stuff like that. Um, so if you've ever cared about game design, it's a really easy to watch like short five minute videos, kind of little packaged good um, on YouTube. So I highly recommend Masahiro Sakurai on creating games, which is on YouTube. Angel, what about you? Uh, I only have a non-relevant chatsum. It's a music chatsum. I've been a fan of a handful of freestyle performances and showings from a rapper named Simba, S-Y-M-B-A. Simba has a great freestyle on uh, LA Leakers from a couple years ago, I think, at this point. Uh, He was recently on with funk flex and uh kind of called out funk flex in the freestyle pretty pretty bold move um and simba released an album this week called results take time uh and uh i liked it you know there's a little bit too much of the sort of like grind set thing uh (laughs) like i worked really hard and hustled every day for this but also uh he seems like somebody who actually walks that walk and has worked incredibly hard to get where he is um and he seems like a pretty thoughtful guy um and i like his music so check out simba and check out results take time if you're looking for some uh some rap this week word i will actually add that to my spotify queue as we ever rapidly approach the spotify rap season and i need to make myself look cool by listening <laughs> to good music <laughs> I saw someone in a newsletter said that today. They're like, yeah, you're going to get the rap soon, so make sure your taste doesn't fucking suck. You only have a few more months. 
to pretend yeah uh magellan that brings us to the end um sorry to be sappy here but thank you for being the kevin to my nora there's like no Whoa. other characters for us to reference i have to there are the only ones left oh wow yeah. i love that i love you i love you too and thank you guys very much we love you as well and thank you for listening to the chat sofas peace Big smooch on the lips. Big smooch on the lips. Alan, editor Alan, you better cut that out. Don't put it in when I said big smooch on the lips. I know you're going to do that.